and welcome to the Weekly Scroll Podcast. My name is Ryan, and with me, we have a very special guest who anyone that watches the show would have seen just a couple days ago. That is Josh Jemanski. How are you doing this morning, Josh? Hello, hello. I am very well. Good. Um, Josh might be our last guest for the month of horror. Um, Hunter is currently driving across the country and heading to um, his final destination for a recent move. Um, and he might be back next week. Um, but Josh is quickly becoming a regular staple here on the show uh, since he will be hosting a lot of our side quests, um, which for those that don't know, it is our kind of actual play one shot series to to teach kind of uh, games we reviewed here on the show. And Josh is a fantastic GM. So it is a real catch to have him running that for us. Um, Josh. For those that might not know you, um, who 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 the heck are you? What what might they know you for? Um, so I am a um, writer and designer in the the indie tabletop RPG scene. Uh, I say that I'm an occasional actual play host, and that's becoming a little more frequent now with the side quest thing. But um, hire me. Uh, uh, I think the most notable work that I've done so far is with uh, Liminal Horror. Uh, I've been working on some of the ventures for them for a while, and uh, I'm officially one of the partners of the Liminal Horror system going forward into the future. <laughs> so um, most recently, the work that's been out digitally for a while now, but we just got it into print, is uh, The Bloom. It's our most recent adventure. Uh, people seem to like it. <laughs> Go check it out. Uh, but I also did uh, the Bureau, which is sort of, um, I think that's probably the most well-known liminal horror adventure at this point. Um, I seem to see that that sort of get organic uh, coverage, like people talking about it in spheres that are not the ones that we inhabit. <laughs> but I, I co-wrote that and did the uh, the layout and design for it. Um, I don't know. I got little bits and pieces kind of everywhere, too. So I pop up in random stuff. Oh, uh, Outer Rim Uprising, Mothership Bundle, Through the Lost Bay. Go check that out, too. There you <laughs> go. It's only, like a million, it's only a million percent funded right now, but we, yeah. you should definitely go check that out. Um, and we will... Uh, you'll, you'll see something about that on here eventually, I guess. Eventually. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so today, today what we're doing, what, what myself and Josh are going to go through, is a continuation of our month of horror here. Um... For, again, those that uh, were watching a few days ago, Josh hosted a, um, a side quest for Liminal Horror on Friday the 13th for a prequel adventure to The Bloom. Um, and I'll be dropping that uh, on podcast and YouTube after we finish this episode today. Um, but uh, he's back to go over They Feed on Fear, written by Alexi Vela. This is a horror RPG. Um I have the physical with me. I'll kind of flip through that real quick, and then uh, we'll actually have Josh kind of intro it a little bit because he did more work for this episode than I've ever done, um, <laughs> and uh, we'll kind of go from there. But the book is great. Um, it's a it's it's a nice little printed perfect bound, um, and when you buy it, you get um, this uh, two character sheets with a with a map that's in the book on the back, which I'm sure we'll discuss because it's kind of a map. Um, you get um, a nice little sticker. There's a, a collectible card. I feel like there's only one, though, but I do like the vibe of this really neat little collectible card for a Fright of Fear Eaters. And then you get a 
quote unquote provider bro. what what's what's uh what's what's the gm called in this oh, shit. i'm gonna say the provider provider yeah provider oh it is provider yeah uh, a little provider screen which um again we'll also talk about but the art on it is fantastic and i think we're gonna sing the praises of the art um uh pretty frequently coming up but um so josh uh what what is what is they feed on fear sure uh maybe we'll note at the top here that i uh I did order a physical copy, but unfortunately it didn't arrive. So uh, my views are going to be purely based on the digital files uh, instead of that sweet physical form. But uh, so they feed on fear. It's a, it's a little system that was put out by Alexi Vela. Uh, if I got this correct, <laughs> Alexi is a, a Canadian uh, designer and they're like a, you know, a, a real graphic designer, uh, and uh, let's see, I, I looked up their their work because um, Alexi's got a website here, but I guess they, they did some uh, stuff in the Delta Sky magazine. Uh, there's a whole other couple of magazines. There's the Atlantic, Forbes, uh, Boston Globe, Variety, uh, and just a whole bunch of other like <laughs> legitimate graphic design work. Um, so... Yeah, Alexi's one of those those triple threats that is ever so dangerous in the the indie RPG scene where they write, they do layout, they do art, and it's all really frustrating because most of it's pretty damn good. Oh. Yeah, but um, yeah, I've been I've been following Alexi's work for a while here. Um, God, one of the interesting things again talking about that triple threat is that um. My my sort of favorite work that Alexi's done is uh, Liminal Space. Uh, this is, it's like a little GMless game um, where you are exploring liminal spaces. <laughs> I think that's kind of a summary there. But um, God, this is like so good, but it's so frustrating because <laughs> when I set out to write the or do the design for the bureau, you know, this is um, a year or so more than that at this point. Uh, I wanted it to look like this. I just wasn't that good of a graphic designer at this point. And so picking up this book, it makes me very jealous. Um, but um, beyond that, I've been, I've been following Alexi's work for, for quite a while, um, sort of more by coincidence than anything to, you know, end up on this episode here. Um, I think it was their first ttrpg release but alexi put out this uh this little pamphlet in 2020 it's called panic on pyramid prime uh it is a uh, trifold adventure for troika and it was part of the uh the troika pamphlet adventure jam that was back in 2020 um this was did i think the jam had finished before i discovered troika because I, I picked it up for the first time in 2020 um and it was before I started doing really any like RPG work on my own. Uh, but finding that jam, you know, getting into Troika, looking into stuff, seeing the, the trifle pamphlets uh, for Troika and specifically that jam uh, is, is kind of what led me to start doing my own design work. I would come out with um, the second thing I ever released, you know, digitally was a pamphlet for Troika called uh, In Service to a Sultan. Uh, specifically for Acid Death Fantasy, like immediately after that it released. And it was sort of like the genesis of me moving into bigger things, which, you know, starting with trifolds and whatnot. So getting to see all these these pamphlets 
um, is really what got me on the way. And Pentagon Pyramid Prime is interesting because it is like striking in terms of the design work. Um, I don't know how how inherently usable it is. Um, it was one of the ones I read. It's, I haven't read, touched it in you know like three years before thinking about the, this today. So I, I haven't run it, but it looks really good. <laughs> so, um, that Troika pamphlet jam is also where um, Carnelian Riddle and the House of Indolent Blooms uh, came out, which is from Mike Anderson, which has produced still to this day my single favorite, you know, um, ran RPG session that I've ever done. So, um, so that was kind of important. And then we kind of follow along here. Um, getting back to They Feed on Fear. Uh, this was uh, kickstarted in 2020. It was part of Zine Quest 2. And Zine Quest 2 um, is such like an important part of the indie community and especially like the OSR community. That was when it really took off. And then it was in the, the subsequent years that Zine Quest kind of like hit the tanks. <laughs> but there was like 98% funding for every proper Zine Quest 2 project. It, it's these big hits that people were getting because they were getting funded that would go on and you still see a lot of creators that made their first zines during zine quest 2 um, making stuff today um so a lot of cool stuff really happened you know during zine quest 2 and they feed on fear was one of these um it appears that this is alexi's first sort of big project as we would like to define them um Going forward from there, we would see, you know, uh, other stuff that Alexi's done is We Are Legion, uh, Liminal Space, which I talked about already, uh, and Night Fright, I think, are the big ones. Uh, at least those are the ones that also got Kickstarter campaigns. Um, but Alexi really seems to focus on uh, what I call non-traditional uh, RPG play, uh, that being um, weird things, like weird positions, playing weird characters, or just GM must play in general. Uh, like I said, Liminal Space... Um, unless I'm completely mistaken from when I read it a while ago, is <laughs> a is a GMless game, um, and these are the things that started to kind of pick up in in COVID and whatnot as people uh, had to kind of change how they played. But um, so they feed on fear, uh, like I said, it was part of Zine Quest Two. Is one of I would say one of the more successful projects. I don't have the the numbers pulled up right now, but uh, there was 737 backers according to the Kickstarter, and about. Uh, $15,000 of funding, which is 550% uh, of their initial goal. So uh, people liked this one, <laughs> at least from the Kickstarter page. Uh, the Kickstarter film fulfillment itself happened in 2021. Um, I believe there was a proper release later in 2021. The current digital page for itch.io uh, looks like it was made in 2022, but I'm pretty sure that the game was out you know, proper before that. And then uh, there was a little bit of a bigger, I don't know if I call it bigger, but uh, one of the bigger updates happened in 2023, you know, earlier this year to add um, digital navigation tools like hyperlinks and bookmarks and stuff here. So that that's going to factor into our discussion. I wonder, I wonder why they got hyperlinks in 2023. I don't know. Hmm. Could it be because I'm fucking annoying about it? Yes. Um... <laughs> yeah, just to um, so liminal liminal uh, space actually does use a GM. We we played it here what on the it? show. Okay. <laughs> um, they uh, I think they call it a, an architect. Basically, they um, they're rolling in uh, the the various entities and rooms as you you go through each of the rooms. Um, liminal is one of the ones they wrote with Willow J or with uh, um, uh, Neon Rot. 
um, they've been doing um, a bunch of, or uh, I think that's the first thing they kind of did, I think put out together, but um, I think that they've been working like kind of hand in hand-ish on, on some things as well. But yeah, Liminal is absolutely great. I would, I would love to run that um, again here on the show. That's that's a fun one. I actually, I think um, They Feed on Fear is what got me into Lexi in the first place. And I actually think I followed the Sig list on Instagram for a very long time before I realized that was also um, Alexi. <laughs> um, after I saw the uh, the Sigil for We Are Legion, I kind of was like, hmm. And then I saw the website and there it was. But yeah, so that is um, that is a little intro into Alexi and uh, what we're going to get into. They feed on fear. Excited for this. Um, I have I have realized that at least for this month's um, month of horror, next year will be interesting because um, we'll probably do this every year from now on as long as we're doing the show. I picked a lot of um, uh, hell. It's a lot of like. Angels and hells and demons and pretty much everything I picked is is that this one's one of the ones that's a little bit different um, because these are uh, entities, not specifically um, demons. Um, I guess they kind of could be. Um, but um, why don't we let's just hop into the game. And we'll kind of dig a little bit deeper into what they feed on fear is. So we'll hop over there now. And this is They Feed on Fear. So, A, right off the bat, this fucking cover, dude. I mean, <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty zoomed in here on the thing, but um, for those looking, it definitely immediately hits you with the, um, God, what were those books in middle school? I, I know it's one of the inspirations, too. No, 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 no. It was the one that was scarier than Goosebumps. Um, it's it's literally one of the biggest inspirations um, in here. It's the uh, Scary Stories one. Okay. Um, did you not read any of the Scary Stories? Is it? It's not Fear Street, is it? Um, Fear Street was that that uh, Netflix thing. Yeah. No. So this is how how what what? Oh no! Yeah, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Did you never see oh. Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark? Fair. Um, my childhood was consumed with reading uh, a lot of Star Wars. <laughs> oh, uh. yeah, no, scary I, I, stories. I got into uh, adult adult books, if you want to call it that. Adult. Um, very early, I was a an early reader. Gotcha. If you if you just Google scary stories to tell in the dark, you'll see the cover even has a big inspiration for it. And a lot of the art as well. This was uh, Goosebumps was cool. I read all of them, but they were very like four kids. Scary stories to tell in the dark was scary as fuck, and the art was just so creepy when we were a kid. Um, so this, there's definitely a very big inspiration for that. But um, for those in podcast land, uh, they feed on fear uh, is a fantastic logo. By the way, this is a really really well done graphic design. It's a nice bold um, red. Uh, beneath it in this um, black, uh, very grunge texture background um, is this creature. I can't describe it more than that. Google what the cover looks like. And then the entire cover has a, a really great um, worn texture. Looks beat to hell, which is exactly what I would imagine um, any version of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark looks like now. Um, and I do it's want to talk great. about that in, well, for one sec. Oh, um, the texture? Yeah. The grunge texture is apparently the grunge texture for books. Uh, we use that literally that exact one for uh, Zed and Two Knots, nice. uh, which is like the first scene that I ever made. Uh, and I, I didn't even find it. I was sent this by my uh, co-creator uh, to use on the cover of it. But uh, coincidentally, it is 
only in the very first print run of Zen Two Knots. We cut it for the second print run because it was such a pain in the ass to work with, uh, really? and it made the art look like shit on the front. So, <laughs> I wonder if you bought. Remind me to check out my Zed and Two Knots. I don't remember which one it is. Yeah, the first print run rest lasted a while. I think they did like 400 copies. It's, some of them made it to like physical retail stores. <laughs> Let's see how long it lasted. Interesting. So, um, yeah. Zed, but, Zed was uh, a, yeah. a slow burner. <laughs> it's um, it's a nice texture. I really dig it. And the back cover as well when we get there is also fantastic. The version I have is is straight from the web store. It's not from Exalted, so it doesn't have any of the tagging. I mean, there's not even like an ISBN code or anything on this. This is a very clean, crisp one. Uh, the back cover art is fantastic. It's a it's a gosh, there's a lot of times where it's just going to be an, an indescribable, horrific entity is the best way we're going to be able to describe it as we go through. <laughs> but it, the art throughout is is fantastic. The in-papers are faces of these just creepy freaking creatures coming out of like very scratch um, art style, um, uh, full in-papers front and back. Uh, this version of the PDF um, is a little bit different too. Um, it is different than the one I originally had. Um, which is one I wrote notes on, but it has a second uh, spread here of similar faces, but these are now in color and much more, um, uh, I want to say viscera-like. They're very shiny and red um, with a dedication in the front as well. And then this, honestly, this page here, this is one of my favorite pieces. I don't really know why. Um, the next one is this full page art of just a very fleshy, shiny red thing with a multi-layered um, maw of teeth. No eyes, no anything else. It's just a very vibrantly red beastie um, that uh, I would not want to encounter. Um, and then we get to the uh, page. The um, What is this? They Feed on Fear Horror RPG written by Alexi. Um, uh, written by Lexi and Carl uh, Skiberis. Um The dedication in the beginning is to Carl, I believe. Um, no, it's to Paul Skiberis. I apologize. Um, it, I assume that is a family member of one of the writers. Edited by Fiona Maeve Geist. Um, a name that is... Honestly, I see damn near as much as Jert's. Um, yeah. And proof uh, proof contribution by David Quinn. Um, there's a huge list here of interior artists and their all the art through this entire thing i think we both kind of are i don't know amazed by the amount and quality of the art for for a project of this size yeah it's just a, a fucking who's who of horror artists here because it's like uh trevor henderson uh david romero daniel vega uh those are the ones that like immediately jump out to me because they're also in other rpg projects or products uh but god damn that is a good list of artists Right. Insanity. Insanity. Um, I assume just having that background of um, that Alexi has, the the connections that he's made, um, are probably insane. I can only imagine. Um, another full page piece of art here. I mean, there's so much art and so much good art of just full page thematic creepy fucking stuff through the entire thing. It's, it's just mind blowing. Um, yeah, this is something I wrote in my notes. But I don't know how Alexi afforded to make this with how much art, how much good art is in this. That that fifteen thousand or whatever that the Kickstarter made just does not feel enough for 
like the quality of these pieces because like i know how much a full splash page costs and it is not cheap <laughs> well you know he is one of the artists on here so maybe he did a lot of the big ones and you know i don't know yeah i guess the one that's i don't even know if i call this a disappointment but it is inherently a little difficult to tell who did what you know it's like i recognize <laughs> trevor henderson's style but i can't even guarantee that the ones i think trevor henderson did are the ones that he did you know yeah. Um, yeah, Daniel Vegas are the ones that I, I know for a factor um, their own because the Daniel's got this incredibly unique looking style. So, I, but um, as for the others, it, it would be kind of cool to know who did what here. Um, but there's just so much of it. Yeah, I mean, I bet you if uh, Alexi would be happy, well, I, I don't know if they're happy to or if they even would, but <laughs> it, it, I'm, I bet you they could tell us exactly who it is. But yeah, you're right. Like, they're just, it's, it's fantastic. And, you know, this does a really good thing. Um, a lot of times when you have a book that has this many different artists in it, it can look a little bit disjointed. Um, but I feel like they did a lot of really fantastic curation um and putting things in different areas and um and just having artists with a similar really dark fucked up vibe that it doesn't feel scattered the art throughout even though you can tell it's different artists all feels like it fits well together which i enjoyed yeah, i mean beyond the the art itself looking good this is a very good example of good art direction mm, you know which yep. is a whole entirely separate thing and it probably helps that alexi is also an artist too so I can only imagine it does. So this version here um, is hyperlinked. Um, it's hyperlinked pretty, pretty like a lot. Um, there's a lot of inline hyper like inline references in the book to other sections. And as I was going through, um, it looks like those are all hyperlinked as well, um, which is a big part of the uh, usability. And it looks like bookmarks as well. So as far as digital tools, good job. I'm glad I waited to review this until after that dropped, but uh, this is the table of contents. Um, it kind of gives you a, um, a preview of what the layout through the entire book looks like. There's this kind of like off-white paper texture, which is which is fine. It's nice that it's not a crisp white. Crisp white in a book is fine, but reading it for 90 pages can get to the eye. I dark mode my entire life, um, including my job. So it's nice when this a little bit more subtle. Um, the red... Um, uh, kind of headers, black, everything else uh, fits through this as well. Um, at the bottom of each page, there are these two. Um, there is there's, there's a page number and these two like branches coming off um, at the bottom of each page, which is nice. And even on this page here at the bottom, this tiny little spot here on the bottom right underneath the, the character sheet page is a little piece of spot art. So I don't think there's any single spot in the entire book that doesn't have um, uh, that has a, a any level of empty space which is cool um but i will say um one of the critiques i did have i think uh, i think you i think i disagreed with something in your notes um i wouldn't have minded if the <clears throat> there are gosh how many headings here one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen fourteen fifteen sixteen seventeen eighteen nineteen twenty two hundred and two to three to four to five six like twenty like almost thirty different like chapter headings in here i wouldn't have minded if it was broken into maybe like two or three larger sections where like maybe like a lot of the rules specifically for the player was in a section or there's a couple of times not very frequently where things are redundant but like there's a community section which is more about building the community um 
And then there's the stress and hysteria section, which also has like a community aspect to it too. So I don't know how I would really rearrange it a little bit, but I wouldn't have minded if um, some of the stuff... Uh, I'll get to it more as we go through. Maybe it had just a little bit of a different organization. But honestly, I feel like it's just me at this point because me and Hunter will disagree with this all the time on what order things go in. If it's rules first or character creation first. Um, Even as like on a professional basis, uh, the opinions vary widely. You know, that there are people you pay entirely to build your table of contents. Um Broadly speaking, we'll get into this a little later. I, I was a little more favorable on how the sections are broken up um, purely because I think this is one of those systems where you have to build your characters before you can do the rules. Um... Uh, or at least give context to what the fuck you're playing is sort of like my thought there. So my my thought, and this is what I have found to be in my mind, what the um compromises because here's the other thing too i i have i'm I'm of two minds of that one being the book exists in its totality all the time you can flip to it whenever you're not like the first time you read it doesn't need to be the only time you read it so wherever orders it in you can always reference the thing that you need right like that's the thing but i do feel like there are times where when the first time you read through the book could determine whether you even feel like playing the game like Blades in the Dark. I, I just don't want to. I read the book. Um, um, and it's because I read the book. But um, my I think in my mind, my compromise is a, a very, very brief um, breakdown of the mechanics just prior to character creation and then a more expanded version later. Because how I view it is like if my if I'm doing character creation, how will I know? what is kind of like important if i don't know the rules of how the game is played or the context in which like here's your ability i'm not going to tell you how you use it but like here's one of them roll for it or whatever and it's just like ah you know so i I like sometimes i like when there's like a little brief little okay this is what a challenge is this is why how you might use it later and then we'll expand on all the different things you can do later um and not again i that is a very very small critique of this i think for the most part like it flows really well through the table of contents there's just a couple times where i feel like i didn't get to a rule until it was like maybe like a third or even halfway through the book mm-hmm. um and i was just like man i i, I kind of wish i would have known like like what an action even is or what an action even looks like prior to building my character yeah um someone asked in chat so this game about being a monster yes yes it is and let me tell you all about that going forward again another (laughs) gruesome full page piece of art here um sucking the you know essence from a child on a mattress but uh, let's go through the introduction they feed on fear is real quick stop back at that last piece of art Oh yeah, is this mixed media? Is this a model, or is it? It just looks three D, or it, lo- it looks digital. It looks like a computer generated um, image. If you look Maybe at like the it. texturing on the mattress, yeah, staring at the PDF, it looks like somebody made a model and then brought it into uh, like a Photoshop and then did manipulation over the top of it. But I could just be looking at that wrong. It's a cool piece either it's way. A possibility. <laughs> I definitely think that this is a um, a very um, I mean, a lot of it's probably digital art at this point, but you know what I mean when I say yeah. like it's a piece of like um, uh, computer art as opposed to um, more of like a sketchiness to it. You can see in like the 
like in the um in the essence or even in like the 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 fog here it looks a little bit different but yeah it might be a mixed medium it might even be like a like a especially the mattress bit might be um like you just said mixed as in like it they brought it in um but it is it is gruesome nonetheless as is everything so um they feed on fear is a semi-cooperative horror-themed narrative tabletop role-playing game uh, the players embody fear eaters, eldritch inter interdimensional beings that feed on a form of human energy called essence. A fear eater's aim is to be the first to accumulate sufficient essence to achieve its end goal. One person assumes the role of the provider and is in charge of describing the games, etc., etc., etc. Unlike most RPGs, the provider does not issue quests. Instead, players are the primary action initiators, determining their own path toward realizing their end goal. Both players and the provider participate in creating and introducing locations to a community. They feed on fears about creating each fear eater's narrative, legend, and lore. So basically, you are an eldritch being, um, and you are sucking the essence from people um, and animals uh, in order to build enough essence to achieve uh, to achieve what you want to as your weird eldritch thing. Um, cool concept right off the bat. Like you get to play the bad guy. I'll never not like a game where you get to be the bad guy. Um, and uh, it, the second it hit me, I'm like, the first thing I thought was, oh, Monsters, Inc. Um, oh, <laughs> Because you, they literally like gather up the fear in the canisters and stuff. Um, that's funny. But uh, but yeah, yeah. Evil um, Monsters Inc. Yeah, that's what this game is. Yeah. Hey, I mean, they're supposed to be evil to begin with. It's not till the end that they harness laughter. But <laughs> so uh, there's a warning before proceeding. Um, basically, um, this is your um, please use safety tools bits. This can get dark. Um, know your players, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I like this. It's great that it's here. It's great that it's in a big, bright red box. We are fans of safety tools here. Um, here's the thing. If you don't want to use them, you don't have to. Just know your players. It is... I'm not even going to get into that discourse. Um, <laughs> what is needed? People and stuff. Um, the I do like uh, that there is a breakdown here right off the bat um, of just the dice that you need. is literally just a D12. Um, and even this little bit here um, is nice to have at the beginning. This is kind of what I mean. Um, it says the most common use um, is a comparison against a target number, um, whether desired result is above or below. Um, and that is detailed in challenges, which is hyperlinked right there. Um, and then other times, including the provider, um, the other times players will generate results and it'll always be on a D12. I really enjoy that it's one dice. It's interesting that it's a D12 because D12 is a very underutilized dice. I feel like statistically, it's probably the most underutilized dice. That was probably the genesis of the uh, the design choice here. Yeah. Um, and uh, and everything just uses one one die. It's great. So it's nice, you know. Like I said, even just that little bit of mechanic in the beginning. Um, I, I just feel like you know, even one more paragraph that even just talked about like you will get abilities. You know, you will get this. You will get that. That's just that's all I want. You know, is just um, maybe twice as much as here. These three little paragraphs that just say. Um, kind of a little bit more about like what you actually get to and then go straight into character creation. Um, but yeah, 
Uh, Fear Eaters. I'm going to read a little bit at the beginning of this, but we're not going to read the, the entire thing, but just to give a little bit more grasp of Fear Eaters. Um, there are beings from elsewhere. Nothing concerning them is normal or natural. Um, they do not possess, collect, or gain loot, gear, weapons, or equipment. Um, instead, they absorb emotional energy known as essence. It's not just emotional energy. It could also just be straight up blood and stuff, um, depending on your, your creature. Um, they're supernatural, interdimensional beings that shapeshift, embodying uh, their target's fear. Um, they're typically solitary. However, on rare occasions, they cooperate, even hunting together in times of great necessity. Um, fear eaters lack classes or skill trees. Mechanically, they have two attribute scores, which we'll get into. I'm not going to get into that too much. Um, essence pools, etc., etc. We're going to get to that in a second. And then the um, there is the provider which is the gym, basically. Provider is an interesting choice for this. I don't remember. Have you ever played, um, gosh, it's a popular horror video game on Twitch where you have a killer and you have people trying to escape the killer. Uh, Dead by Daylight? Um, yes. What is the What is the bad thing called in that? Oh, balls. I don't know. It doesn't matter. We don't, but that the provider, I'm curious why it's called the provider. I assume they're providing the story, but I wouldn't have minded if it was something like if that was called like the entity or, or something like that. You yeah, know what I mean? I, like, I think I, I took it more as they provide the prey. They, yeah. they, they're the ones who yeah. give you, but either way, I'm all for a gratuitous uh, GM suit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, God. Give it a stupid title. Hell yeah. I, I love the stupid titles. If you can make it say GM or DM2, like I love that nod to just whatever, like especially DM, because you're not allowed to say DM because Dungeon Master is literally copywritten. But if you can be like the Dark Master or the Dookie Master or whatever yeah. you want to be, like I love that shit. Um, so that's um, just a quick breakdown of the game. Before we um, continue, do yeah. you want to talk about layout here or should I save that for later? Um, I think we've seen enough layout here if you have an opinion on it. All right. Um, I just wanted to kind of front load some of this because it, it's this introduction page is a really good like example of how the rest of the layout works in this. Yep, absolutely. Um, so it's pretty straightforward. You have your small introduction, uh, nice red uh, typeface there. I know what this is. I just can't remember the name of that typeface. It's a really common horror one, especially in like uh, novels. You'll see it on the cover of novels all the time. I've written down somewhere. Um, then you get, this is actually a, a kind of a favored uh, format of mine where you have um, just introductory body text in single line or single column then the page will split to break down into double column. Uh, so I, I really like that uh, personally because I do it all the time. Um, but then you have your big call-out boxes. You know, the big important warning is in this red box, and we'll see some more of those in the future. And then uh, there are smaller gray boxes that have uh, sort of reference text is how I kind of like to describe that. It's like, you know, more call-out. So it's things drawing your eye to the attention. Um, the typeface itself, I think it's Roboto. I could be wrong about that. I don't have the best eye for typefaces, but that's, it's a common one. And if it's not Roboto, it's one of the the same, you know, line. You're, you know, your basic typefaces that look good. Um, this has got to be a lower size. We're talking, I think it's got to be nine point font. So it is small. 
And this is kind of why I wanted to get ahead of this too, because this text here is uh, a bit cramped. Like in the gray box specifically or in, in the entire thing? I think in the entire thing and I get it. Um, so um, there's this is stupid designer brain hat here. Um, and it's something I've, I've been teaching myself over the summer. So it's not like I have this in, infallible uh, opinion on these matters. But um, this is some a great example of a book that could have used a baseline text. Uh, and if you or the viewers are unfamiliar, a baseline grid or baseline uh in general, is this idea where you're sort of standardizing lines hidden on the page with which to set your text. And it's a way to sort of create uh, a natural spacing that flows through the entire document. So when you get um, two column texts, the text is always going to be lined up with each other, you know, on both sides of the column. Uh, including like headers and stuff like that. So the spacing is always even and it's always set to this baseline. Um, which I probably did a really poor example of or job of explaining that. <laughs> but um, what that allows you to do is when you use a baseline text is kind of spread the body text apart just a little bit and make it inherently uh, more readable. Now, this is good. This is pretty damn good. I've seen some real bad layout before and I've done a lot of that bad layout too. So I'm not, I don't want to like nitpick it. Um, the biggest problem I have with this, and it's again, it's a pedantic little gripe, is that because everything is so condensed, because it's a smaller uh, font size, and you know we're we're dealing with either a half letter or A5. I don't know what the actual size is here, but um, it starts to create this sense of eye fatigue as you read it. And this is a dense book; it's a hundred pages. So if you're trying to get through this, and this is the exact struggle I had, is because I'm trying to read this before the review. <laughs> And you just get to the point where it becomes a little bit hard to read. It just kind of all blurs together. Just and it's, I don't know if there's a perfect solution for this. Um, you're trying to cram in a lot of text and there's a lot of text in this book. There's a lot of art. And so you need to kind of weigh the, how the layout is spread versus how many pages you want. Cause it's like, if I had my way, this would probably be 30 pages longer. Maybe not that much, but like 10 pages longer just because I would like it a little more spaced out. Um, but again, this is, you know, a minor gripe at best, but we'll, we'll see these same issues kind of like throughout the rest of the text here. It's just a little bit too condensed for like comfortable reading if you're going to spend two hours staring at this book to learn the system. Um, and then the, the little gray boxes that we'll see, uh, that's, it's just flat out too small. Too small. Um, yeah, yeah. Way too small. it's it's yeah. like six point font in there. Um, and I get the point, you know, creating differences in text sizes uh, has a visual effect. It draws your eye to it. And these are the color boxes you're supposed to want to look there, uh, which is good. It's just, it's too small. <laughs> one, one uh, up at one point size and you're, you're golden. You can even do it even smaller than your body text, but it's, um, gets to the point where it becomes a little hard to read because it's so small here. And we see these, like I said, these boxes are spread all throughout the layout. Mm. Yeah, I mean, when you actually read the physical, like it is, it is small, tight, dense text. It's like mothership dense with a smaller typeface. Um, and my old eyes, I definitely read it in the PDF. Again, I think it looks, I think it looks great, but 
You know, one of the other things that I'm like torn on a little bit too is just how much bolding there is. I love bold. I love a nice bold. It helps my ADHD <laughs> brain grab onto stuff. But I don't think, and I don't remember which game we reviewed recently that did the same thing. And I definitely took a, a, a shot at that for it is um, when the same thing is bolded so many times, it starts to also become like hard on the brain. So like like every keyword through the entire book is always bolded all the time. So every time you see the word fear eater, it's always bold. Every time you see the word essence, it's always bold. Anything that's a capitalized keyword is bolded the entire time. I'm of a mind that the first time you see it or maybe through like the first section that you see it, bolding it and then not bolding it, just keeping it capitalized just helps the brain grab on to the next bold thing that is important you know if everything's all bolded nothing feels important but if the first time you do fear readers bolded your brain goes okay that's important and the first time you see essence that's important and when you get 30 pages in you might see ability for the first time and that's bolded okay that's important but if it's all if so much of it's bolded all the way through the brain stops really kind of grasping on to like what's important um but um but uh yeah as you said pedantic uh layout stuff for someone who's probably done a million times more layout than either of us have ever done but yeah. um i will say i definitely read the pdf once i saw the book had a little bit lower font because um it was a little smaller i, I you know i wouldn't honestly i don't think it has a page count for it but i i will always prefer like an a5 size like this but i think this could have been like a full size you know, eight and a half by 11 book. And I'd have been completely okay with it. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of debating that too. Um, Cause the thing is if you blow this up a little bit to a bigger size, even like a B5, just a handful bigger, leave the same text per pages. It makes it just slightly larger. You have a little more space to play with and then you're golden. But also the problem is, is I like vehemently hate large sized <laughs> RPG books. And it's, same. Yeah. Uh, it's, I can't use a full letter or A5 or A4, uh, full letter A4 book while I'm sitting at my desk. And that's like the biggest thing. And it's such a personal gripe too. So I, I always favor the smaller size because I'll actually use it. But uh, I do agree. This one would have been interesting to see bigger, especially because of the artwork, mm -hmm. uh, getting oh. that to blow up to even bigger sizes. The full pages that would be okay. So, so let's just get all of our gripes out here at the beginning. So I'll do this. I love the provider <laughs> screen that came with the book. I think it's like it's gorgeous. And I love these little screens. Realms Apparel did like a little screen like this too, and I love it so much. There's another game I have. I don't remember what it is, but whatever this kind of like just little gatefold um, uh, situation is. But the problem is, do you notice anything missing on the GM screen? When I flip it both sides. Oh, is it just art? It's just art. There's nothing oh. on it. So I don't, and I always just roll a D12, so I don't need to hide a D12 roll. Like it's always like, it's pretty, it, this isn't like a, a game where you wouldn't. So like, that is one thing I threw out this entire thing. I think you said in your document package, you got like a, like a, a two page little, like all the rules broken down. I didn't get that. Um, so send that to me um, uh, at some point. I'll hit you up for it. But I like there's a decent amount of rules as you go through this. It's not hard, but there's it's, I just feel like every time it's like, OK, and then another thing. OK, and then another thing. OK, and then another thing. I would not have minded a 
some information across the back of this provider thing, and that would have made it completely fine by me. If it literally just had like like the attributes, it had challenges, it had um the the especially once we get to the um the prey, like their reactions or like what happens mm-hmm. with stress and stuff like that, even just a little bit of info across the back of this, I think would have been a plenty for me to be able to yeah, be like, I don't need the book at all. Now. Yeah, because it's not it's not hard. It's just kind of a lot. Um, I would have been fine with that. But yeah, and that, yeah. all that stuff you're looking for is is more or less in that. It's like a two page reference sheet that's included in the digital package that I got. So yeah, that's interesting. I, I like I said, I haven't got the physical version yet. I assumed that that's all that was that they took the reference sheet and put it on a little GM screen. <laughs> huh. Yeah, but they did not. Oh yeah, this is this is this is fantastic. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna open it up so we can show that to chat real quick. Um, I, literally, one of my big critiques at the end was gonna be like, man, I don't understand why they don't have a reference sheet, and I guess mine must have just not not come in the package. But um, here for those in podcast land um, is a reference sheet, and for those watching, this is exactly what I wanted. I don't know why wouldn't this be in the back of the book? Yeah, and that's uh, again to get ahead of our critiques a little bit here. Um, the reference sheet is great. Fantastic. It's just not in the book standard. Yeah. <laughs> it's a separate file. And um, we'll talk about it a little bit later. There are a number of these yeah. tables that you're going to have to reference during play. And they're mm-hmm. spread out throughout the book. And again, they're not hard tables. They're not even really all that difficult to remember once you kind of just... play the system a few times. It's just there's this reference sheet already made. And it's not on the end pages of the book. <laughs> yeah, that would have been really great. Or... Like I said, even just on the provider screen that comes with the thing. But yeah. Okay. So that's going to be a lot. I think that's a lot of the bulk of our critiques. Um, So we're going to just cruise through the game itself now. Um, We're getting to creating a fear eater. So basically, um, creating a fear eater has two stages you have lore creation and your initial values. Um, Lore um, is. Exactly what it sounds like. I think it's a great term for this. It's the lore is a fear eater story thus far. It's your traits and backgrounds. Um, and as the player, you describe basically this entity that you are. So you go with a name, your elder true name, um, which I love. But I also wish there was some mechanic or something that made it more dangerous for you because um, you know, everyone knows that your true name has power against you, um, but it never really comes up um, unless I'm mistaken. Um, you pick your essence type, your end goal, your physical appearance, a portrait, which could also just be a symbol, an object of power um, and a layer. That's what you go through to build out your lore. Um, so I would say uh, it's all pretty straightforward, but um, because that was the first thing that came to mind, but. Uh, I don't think it's particularly straightforward, but I don't think it is difficult. Uh, the go. section here does a pretty decent job of explaining what each of those things are, even if this is a very high-level concept that I think um, some people might struggle to kind of bring to life in their minds. I think the whole game is a little bit of a high-level concept. I think the one of the other critiques I'm going to get to eventually is I feel like it would be... The best way to play this would be very, like, deeply, like, super bought into being an entity and hunting and stalking and doing all that kind of stuff. But I can I can see a very, 
I wouldn't be surprised if more times than not, people that jumped into this played this as like a third person situation. It's kind of like how I felt when I was reading through Blades in the Dark, where I'm like, I don't feel like I'm playing the game. I feel like I'm like picking actions and then watching the game play out in front of me. So I feel like I'd be playing in like third person instead of first sure. person. And I could see a lot of people like not really engaging with the narrative a ton and really like just engaging with the mechanics and and doing stuff like that where you're kind of like I said, you're, it feels like I feel like I'm almost like a step back from some of this with the, with the way that some of the rules are as opposed to being like deeply in it. Um, but, um, you know, I feel like this is definitely not a, I mean, I don't think it's written to be a game for everyone. Uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but um, I feel like player buy-in would have to be like pretty insanely high to really get everything you want out of this. Kind of how liminal uh, spaces as well, where if you just engage with the mechanics, it does. It's not very scary, but if you really like dig deep into actually, you know, being afraid of the entities coming and how you would really react, um, it would be a little bit. It would be a lot more fun. Yeah, and this is. I don't know if it's intentional or not, but this is a story game. You know, it's it's not like set up in the way that a Power by the Apocalypse game is or whatever. But when you start reading the rules, you read the intention of it. Yeah, that's what it is. And story games have this sort of inherent higher level of buy-in. And like Blades in the Dark, you're not even necessarily doing it or playing it in the same way you would like a trad game. Um, so that kind of will end up shaping your experience. You're there to contribute to a narrative and not to embody a character or to be lost in a character like you might in some other systems. Yeah. Yeah. I think, hmm. yeah. Well, examples of player are interesting. And when we get to those and there's a ton of those, um, uh, which, and I love examples of play as well as, you know, I think you, you had mentioned starter adventures in, in some of the notes that you wrote. Um, is just such a good way to um, try to understand the way that the creator intended things to be played. So when we get to those, um, that'll be um, those will be interesting. So lore. So you pick a name. As I said, you pick your elder true name. Um, you keep that very secretive. Uh, you pick your essence type. Um, and so the fairy readers preferred energy resource to be drained is your essence type. It's what you pull from your prey. And we'll get to essence a little bit more. Um, but it can be any number of things. Um, it's just a thing that sustains you. Your end goal. Um, you pick what it is. Um, but mechanically, it comes down to... Um, plugging essence into a clock that'll get you towards your end goal you pick your physical appearance you you can shapeshift all the time but you generally have a specific appearance um that you kind of have as like your default um a portrait as i said um they say representative symbol is fine actual image is cool if i could draw like all the artists in this book i would draw my own but i can't so um you pick an object of power um which is an item uh, connected that connects you uh, to your uh, original dimension or reality. Um, it's usually within your lair. And then you also build out your lair. It is a dark, secret, abandoned location. Um, there are a lot of generation tables that are great in the back of the book. Um, and the PDF is hyperlinked to take you back to page 64 um, for that. Um, refining your lore. Once players establish a favorite reader's lore, they must share and discuss their choices with the provider. Basically, you can shape all of that out um, with the provider, with the other people at your table. Um, and then there's some questions that can be answered as you go through, like how is your object of power displayed? 
Um, how did you come to the community that you're in, et cetera, et cetera? Because this game can be just two people as in a provider and one fear eater, or there can be multiple fear eaters kind of like in the community. So the provider needs this information to build out that community. Um, and that is lore. And then you have your initial values. So once a player has decided upon their theater's lore, you do this thing. So your initial values are as follows. You have um, mind versus matter, and that's a score. Um, you have physical versus ethereal. Then you have uh, 20 essence that you start with in an essence pool, and your essence pool will change. Um, it is your pool for pretty much everything that you do. And then you have an unfilled doom clock, which we'll also get to in a little bit. So uh, there is a, a little breakdown here of what that looks like on your character sheet, but it's just boxes with those things at the top. But to break down what those attributes are, um, you have the mind versus matter and the physical versus the ethereal. So mind and matter, I... So here's the thing, is I like... I think these graphics look fantastic. So there's a graphic that has mind on one side matter on the other and a red zero in the middle and it's plus one plus two towards mind minus one minus two towards matter and then same thing with physical and ethereal so plus one plus two towards physical minus one minus two towards ethereal so physical and mind are positive stats in the sense that they are positive numbers, not positive or negative in the context. And then ethereal and matter are negative numbers. I really love this graphic because it can move. Your, your fear reader is going to adapt and change over time. We'll get to that in a second. Um, so those are there. But then there's also this attribute wheel, which I'll jump to a little bit. I love both. I don't feel like there's a need for both. I'd be okay with just the attribute wheel. And I feel like the... the um, I don't know why I feel like there's a redundancy, even though I think I love the graphic and it looks really fantastic. Um, what are your thoughts on the attribute wheel and then whatever these two kind of like attribute like bars are? I feel like it's just the same thing twice. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the... I'll get there in a sec. Uh, <laughs> but the attributes themselves, I think, are kind of an interesting starting point here. Uh, the way that the game describes it is that the fear eaters have two attributes. And these two attributes are each themselves a pair of aspects. So you have like the mind versus matter is one stat. Then the physical versus ethereal is another stat. And so it's this, um, it's a sliding scale. The system even tells you that uh, where, you know, you're good at one and bad at the other. Uh, in my notes here, I likened this to uh, lasers and feelings. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's intentional, but the idea of lasers and feelings is if you're good with lasers you're bad with feelings and vice versa but it takes that kind of concept and you know creates the attribute wheel now you have two of these different competing stats and how they interact is how your you know, your character is built i guess but um i let me take a look at the character sheet real quick yeah huh okay they do have the aspect modifiers the little bars i figured they wouldn't have the bars on the character sheet itself um i was under the impression at least before looking at the character sheet there, that it was really the little bars were just there for um, helping you figure out what it is before <laughs> moving to the attribute wheel. Because the attribute wheel, you stare at that thing, and it's like, oh, God, I don't know what that's saying. But when you break it apart, you show those two bars, and then you can kind of see how they connect. It start The pieces start to come together a little bit better, for me at least. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't mind them being here. I think it is a little interesting that those 
are also both present on the character sheet itself. Yeah. But yeah, it's good design. I, I, they're I they're feel like really good looking graphics. They're great graphics. They're clean and nice, and I like them. I just feel like there's one or two things that I would have liked to see on the sheet instead, and it, they, those take up room when I feel like there's just yeah. redundancy. Um, anyway, so as you said, there's uh, plus minus on the stats, and I really enjoy when we get to the mechanics of why they are pluses minus, because when I first read it, I was like, well, you could just have pluses either way, and no, it, it, it matters, and we'll get to that in a second. But that's basically your stats. Like As Josh said, you have um, mind over matter, um, let me just, <laughs> and then you have the physical and ethereal, and then uh, I love the attribute wheel because it um gives you kind of the breakdown of the types of fear eaters you can be, which we'll get to in a second, as you are in between all of those things. So if you're all mind, or if you're all matter, that's one thing. But if you're between mind and ethereal. You can be a possessor. If you're between physical and matter, you can be bestial. And I love when things like this happen, especially in games where you have these kind of polar opposite things, and then you have to find this middle ground. It's so clean and well done in this. I, I really love the descriptions we're going to get to in a little bit. Um, but those, um, just the graphic and, and the way that all plays out is really, really well done. I, I It's it's a, such a good mechanic here in this game, and it being yeah. the core is is fantastic. It's, it's a little um, difficult to parse when you first read it. But once you start to get all the concepts and figure out the rest of the book, it's like, this is fucking cool. <laughs> Absolutely. It's definitely one of those things where once I closed the book and then went back to the beginning. Yeah. It, you know, it, it exactly what you just said. I'm just going to repeat what you just said. Once you get it, it's great. Um, so types of fear eaters, we already described what a fear eater is. So there are um, one, two, I mean, math number of fear eaters. So there are protean fear eaters, which everyone is when you start. You basically have no specialization. You are just a fear eater that is you. Um, you have singularities. These are ones that are pure aspect fear eaters, which means they go towards the primary. Like they are the physical, they are the ethereal, they are the, you know, not mix of the two. So back on the attribute wheel, they would be like the mind, matter, physical, ethereal. They wouldn't be the in-between ones like possessor, spectral, and bestial. Um, I skipped over this, again, insane piece of art that reminds me so much of scary stories that tell in the dark of this, I don't know, this creature. Buy the book. Look at the art. Um... Uh, then you have the spectral fear eaters. Uh, you have basically singularities are the primary four, and then you have the four in-betweens. So spectral fear eaters are a mix of physical and mind, and they seek mastery over their prey's mental faculties, trapping them in illusions and altering their realities. You have the bestial fear eaters, which are physical and matter aspects. They've poured almost everything into the physical world. So um, their prey's mistake them for corporeal beings. Um, so they seemed... Uh, as as described, bestial, they feel more present. They're the possessor ones that lean into mind and ethereal. Um, again, the word is great. They are actually, um, they possess their parade toy with them, leading them into conflict with close allies, turning their allies against them. And then there are the lurker fear eaters, which uh, lean towards matter and ethereal, um, and they exert force on the physical environment. So um, more of manipulating... Um, uh, things, moving shadows, uh, disembodied sounds, things like that. Um, all of these are fantastic. Um, there is a, uh, a couple times throughout the book, there are little gray boxes full of very thematic 
um, prose. Uh, I'm not going to read it. You should buy the book and read them. They're great. Um, more art. And then we get to essence and what exactly essence is. So this is what is drained from the prey. Uh, you pick in, char in character creation what the essence type that you want to go with is, um, and it can represent a number of things. Emotional energy, innocence, youth. Um, it can even represent flesh and blood, especially if you're leaning more towards those physical ones. Um, and mechanically, it is the fuel you have for everything that you do. Yeah, I, I sort of liken this to uh, soul, like you're sucking someone's soul out. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Um, and then uh, you, you need essence to do everything, um, including leveling up. So I, I do like that, although it does feel like none of the mechanics are difficult there and there are like a decent number of them. It's it's pretty simple all around. It's just D12 rolls and gaining essence. And that's pretty much it. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah, a core this of the is, game. Um, it's a game built on a procedure of play more than complex mechanics and dice rolls oh yeah absolutely um and i i really like that especially for this style here um so draining uh your prey's essence you first successfully detect at least one of the prey's fears using detect fear this is this is one of the things that i'm talking about for for later right so it says you successfully detect at least one of the prey's fears using detect fear but it never i wouldn't I would have liked it to say you use like one of the actions like actions is a term used later to describe all of the things that you do, but you never really put the two and two together of like drain fear is an action and this is what an action is until you get to the action list, which is like 30 plus pages later. Um, yeah. I wouldn't have minded if they said something, even just tweak their wording a little bit to like you successfully detect using a detect fear action or using an action bolded you know, um, uh, this one being detect fear or something, then I would have been like, oh, okay. So like, this is an action that I get to do. And I use, I use essence to do that. Um, uh, just a little bit earlier on as you're building the, the character early on to have a little bit more understanding of what the actions are. Cause it wasn't until like 35 pages in, I was like, oh, there's a whole list of stuff that I can do. These are the things that I can do with the character that I built. Yeah. And th this would have been, um, even if the text itself doesn't change, it would have been a really great spot to put your inline hyperlink text reference, uh, especially in the digital version. Or because um, we see in the next page here, or the, sorry, not the next page, the next sentence, you know, after which the fear reader can perform a drain essence action uh, facing the associated challenge. And the challenge points you right to the challenge page. Uh, you pop a little page number by detect fear. And, you know, you can see that when you read the physical, but you click that when you hit the PDF you pop right over to that page it doesn't solve the issue by any means but it is uh, a little more helpful especially if you're already going through the process of doing the page references right and here's the thing too is like it does say you can perform a drain essence action action there's a whole list of actions it's an action table it's interesting that like that word isn't bolded or capitalized or anything the first time you see action as a as a mechanic in the game that is an important aspect you know what i mean like i definitely skipped over that every time i've read it where it said you actually perform this action because it's just to me lowercase unbolded was just like oh, okay it, it's not a it's not a keyword it's not a mechanic word it's not a buzzword if it's not bolded like the other important things are um 
Yep, so uh, challenges are made with a praise target number in the drain essence relevant attribute. If successful, the figure eater gains its prey essence. Otherwise, it gains no essence. Um, that's basically what it comes down to. You will do challenges against a target number and that will determine if you gain a praise essence or if you're successful at your actions in general. Um, and then each type of character or each type of prey will generate a different amount of essence. Um, this is another one of those things where we see the amount of essence drained by different types. And there's a whole section later where it goes more into the types. And I don't remember if this table, the essence generation table, is also in the longer version of the types later. And I would have been okay um, if it wasn't here and it was more there as this just an intro into types and then all the info you need in types later. So unless it is later, I wouldn't mind moving this to later. Um, there are four types of prey. And again, there's a whole section on that, so we won't dig too deep into it. But there's animal, civilian, threat, and chosen. Um, but shouldn't this be protector right here instead of threat? Did, did that just pop into my brain? Isn't protector? Yeah, yeah. Animal, civilian, protector, and chosen. But on the essence generation table, it says animal, civilian, uh -huh. threat, and chosen. There it is. And then um, on this generation table, it basically says the type, the range that you could possibly get from each different type, and then the amount based on your rolls. So again, everything comes down to a D12 roll. If you drain a chosen and roll a, or the, the provider would roll after, you roll a, a, an eight, um, a roll of seven or an eight, you get eight essence from it. Um, and then you have your essence total, which is uh, each prey has a total amount of essence they can have. There is another uh, link here to prey profile, so we get to that later. But you know they have that, and then a um, the prey has resilience, which again there's a whole section for prey later, so we'll get to that later. Um, essence as a resource, this is important. So um, basically, as I said before, essence is the entirety of everything that you do. It's the only stat, it's the only pool of resources you have and you have to spend it on everything. Um, so this, this is another part where like you see this numerous times, like how you use the essence, but having a breakdown of like essence a, B, C, D, the various ways you can use it, I would have I would have been okay, or like one, two, three, four. Sure. Um, but Doom Clock Completion is one thing that we'll we'll get to later. Um, again, so Doom Clock, you fill in segments, and that is how you both advance your creature and advance them towards the end goal on the encroaching doom. Um, and then when you use essence within an encounter, basically you have a pool and you decide how much essence when you first leave your layer that you're going to take with you. And that is how much you can use in each encounter. So say you have 20 essence and you want to take 10 with you, you'll leave 10 essence in your layer and you have 10 to use as you're hunting your prey. Um, if you run out of that, you have to abandon your hunt. You have to abandon your prey and go back to your layer in order to have your essence. And if you ever run out of essence, you kind of quote unquote die, except you're an eldritch interdimensional being. So you kind of, kind of die. Yeah. So th this is, um, you know, that right here is where we establish the core gameplay loop. Mm -hmm. 
you you bring you you start in your layer you decide how much essence you're bringing and leaving behind your essence is used to gain more essence but the key is the essence you drain from your targets is not something that immediately refills your pools it goes into your layer pool basically so you will go out there, you'll spend the essence you've already gambled, in theory, gaining more than what you started with, but you can't use it immediately. You got to go back and like digest it effectively. Mm -hmm. um, so you start in your layer, you go out, you collect, you head back to your layer, and that's you know the basic loop of the play right here. Mm -hmm. And basically, the, the reason that you choose how much essence to take with you is if you hit zero you die so if you don't take it all with you and you hit zero you have the ability to go back to your lair and have essence still so it, it's your risk thing you could theoretically take all of your essence with you but if you get if you're out there and you run into protectors and all sorts of different things you could die by not having any essence back in your lair so it's an interesting like choice uh, mechanic that they built into this for like how much risk reward do I want to have for the amount of essence I can use to hunt my prey and to battle them versus how much risk I want to have for if I somehow get caught with all of it out of my lair and don't get to drain any essence, how much will I go back to my lair with? Yeah, and um, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but your essence is uh, used in effectively the character progression in the game. So leaving it at the layer is how you improve as a, uh, you know, being an entity. Huh. Um, death and regeneration, as we said, these are eldritch beings. So uh, if you were to die, you can regenerate, but there are a there is a D12 regeneration table of how well you regenerate. One through six, it's a true death. You're dead. Your 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 character dies, um, and and stages up from there. You have a crippling regeneration, an imperfect regeneration, regeneration, and a perfect regeneration. And these come back with various um, aspects of how much essence you get back in your pool, and um, if you actually get to gain abilities as you increase your doom clock. Um, I really like the regeneration. I like that if you go down, there's at least a 50% chance that you can bounce back. And I like that there is a, a, a range of how shitty that is for you if you do make it back. Um, I, I love games that um, punish you for your bad decisions. Um, so, um, yeah. Uh, getting to the Encroaching Doom, the Doom Clock that we just recently spoke about. Basically, it is a 12-point clock. And as Josh said, to reach your end goal, how you quote unquote win the game is to fill your clock with essence. So um, between encounters, fear eaters can spend essence from their essence pool to fill the doom clock segment. Um, it is a also your form of experience. So you start with it unfilled and then you fill segments as you play and you have to spend essence in order to do so. So you subtract essence from your total pool and you fill the number of segments that you have or that you would like to. And after filling in each segment, you record the segments number on your counter. Um, for every Doom Clock segment that you fill, you move one spot in any direction on your attribute wheel. So if you have, say, plus two in physical and you actually want to shift your guy a little bit more ethereal, you can actually go from plus two to plus one and move back and forth across the wheel. And we'll explain why you might want to have negative stats um, in a bit when we get to that. Um, but every two uh, segments of the Doom Clock that you fill, 
um, you actually get to um, gain a new ability. So there's a, a graphic here that says how many segments and the cost of each one, zero to one being five, two to five being 10, et cetera, et cetera, with 12 being the final one. And that takes a whole a 25 essence. So you start with 20 and to just get from 11 to 12, it takes a 25. So that tells you how much kind of essence you need to build and grow your pool beyond what you even start with. Um, and then there is basically the doom clock table, which realistically is a class table. I mean, I know there's no quote unquote classes in the game, but like it's the same as you would find at the top of like D&D &D 5e, where it says at level one, you gain an ability and do this. At level two, you do that. At level three, you gain an ability and do this. And that's what it basically comes down to is every other one, as we said, every two segments. So every other one, you gain a new ability and you may choose to move one spot on the attribute wheel. And every other one opposite that, you just get to move on the attribute wheel. So every time you advance the doom clock, you get something at least if you want to. Yeah. And this this is clever. I, I like this, um, yeah. and not just because it's called the Doom Clock, <laughs> but uh, it kind of sets up uh, something we'll talk about a little bit about later. Um, that this is sort of the end goal of this game is a longer campaign. Uh, you need a lot of essence to move these slots of the Doom Clock. You know, to complete the whole thing around. So you're doing that core gameplay loop again and again and again. Uh, you know over a handful of sessions at least at, yeah at least i mean that's the thing is it's it's i know there are actual plays online of this and i would love to watch it to see how it actually plays out um i'm curious with the amount of essence you need if it would start to feel redundant which i mean every time you go into combat in any game or go into a dungeon in any game it, there's going to be a level of redundancy but if you stay in the same community and kind of run into the same things i mean i know we get to hysteria and there's changes and things i'm curious how long a campaign is if it's three sessions or 10 sessions based on the amount of essence that you get on average session that's that's what i'm most curious about um yeah my, my impression is that it's closer to the 10 plus but i don't i don't think i get a good have a good grasp of that by the time i was done reading this book i know yeah. it's not like one session for sure but no. but uh yeah this this piece of art here could not scream um scary stories to tell in the dark more i feel like this is the one where i was like is that is that actually the cover um but um you know but it, it's fantastic it is a creature running in the night with stringy hair again you gotta you you gotta get this book or at least get the pdf and look at the art throughout this if you like horror art at all even just for that i feel like this book is such a, a just a, a fantastic piece of media for it um getting into fear so human prey and fear uh and they feed on fear so this is another just super fucking pedantic gripe um i am totally okay with books not referencing their own name um, I don't like like this line here that says in they feed on fear, comma, all human prey suffer from fear. If you deleted that, it wouldn't change anything. I feel like it's just five words you don't need to have. And to me, in my mind, even though it's a rules text, I feel like anytime you reference the game itself, I don't know why it like kind of takes me out of it a little bit. Um, but I don't know if you how you think about that. Uh, I'm a. Uh with the name of the book in the text type of guys oh. <laughs> i can't complain too much uh, but th this feels a little weird if th that it's only here as far as i can tell oh it um, pops up a bunch 
Oh, yeah. does okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. minor, like again, the most pedantic of gripes too. Um, the system is called they feed on fear. The prey has fear, but you're actually feeding on their essence. <laughs> which you gain their essence by causing or by figuring out their fear. So again, it's a little stupid gripe, but it was just. Yeah. Well, I, I think fear eater sounds a lot better than essence eater, you yeah. know, more thematic. I'm okay. I'm okay with that one. Um, so in they feed on fear, all human prey suffers from fear and possess three types, a universal, a major and a specific. I love these. Basically it says, look at it like a target. Um, a being your universal, B being your major, and C being your specific fear. Um, and in order to drain uh, prey of their essence, you have to know at least one of their fear types. So you'll do that with an action. Um, and I like how it says basically use it like a, look at it like a target where the outside ring is your universal fear, the inside ring is your major fear, and then the bullseye is your specific fear. Um, so the examples here, one is Ginny suffers from universal fear of mortality, a major fear of cemeteries, and a specific fear of corpses. So that's an example where all of the fears kind of like tie into each other, but they don't have to. Another example is Paul suffers from a universal fear of darkness, a major fear of bees, and a specific fear of needles. So that I think the words are pretty self-explanatory, universal, major, and specific. So universal is very broad it's dark it's it's i mean i to me i don't know i feel like ocean is almost a universal fear because just how big it is but like it's a very broad like mortality being a great example of it going all the way down to a specific fear of needles um i love all three um and i love the way that it's used and even described as like a target um is a great way it's it sticks in my mind yeah and i'll, I'll give major props to the call out box and the little graphic that's here uh because like when i read that first paragraph you know the first time through the other day it was like what the hell is this talking about and then you see the graphic the little bullseye target that they have there and the two examples and it's like oh got it there we go perfect yeah yeah it's in the graphics throughout the entire thing even the colors through them this kind of like gray dark gray and red is the same thing that they use in the boxes the same thing that they use in the um in the attribute sliders and stuff it's fantastic it's not even like a, i don't know why the fact that it's not like a cherry apple red it's just kind of like almost orangish red is so perfect and i don't know why it is but it just i don't know something about like the the combination of the colors just really sets it off um, fear detection. So to drain essence or abduct human prey, fear eater must know at least one of the fears, as I already said. Fear eater um, uh, spends an essence cost and successfully passes a challenge. Um, they roll on a D12 on the fear detection table, determining if a fear is detected, what the fear is, its type, and associated modifiers. So the fear detection table is a D12, just like everything. It's got one and two, one to two, three to six, seven to nine, and ten to twelve. So um, the detected fear on a one to two is a failure on a three to six, it's the universal on a seven to nine major and a 10 to 12 specific. And then the more specific, the farther you, the more successful you are, the more you get for it. So, um, your result on the one to two with the failure, you don't drain any essence on a three to six. You can perform the drain essence or abduction action on a seven to nine. You can perform the drain essence or you can, you can, you can do all of that. 
but the modifiers you get for knowing the fears. Obviously, a fear, you get nothing. On a three to six, you get nothing. But if you know the major fear, you get a plus one modifier. And if you know the specific fear, you actually get a plus two modifier. So the more you know about the fears, the more specific the fears are, the more modifiers you get to actually be able to drain the essence easier. Again, clean. That's one thing I have to say about the whole system is like it. There's times where it kind of feels like a lot, even though each one of the procedures is very simple, but it all feels very clean. It all feels right. very, very well crafted to just be like, oh, yeah, that absolutely makes perfect sense. Is that the thing that you would also do? You know, agreed. Um, so if the fear detector detects any of its praise fears, it can perform drain essence. We talked about that. Um, we're going to talk about the modifiers. Um, you can uh, detect a f uh, praise fear more than once to learn another of the praise fear. And the more, if you get all three, that's just a ton of modifiers you're getting towards the thing. Um, and when you gain knowledge from the detect action, um, the information is not shared with other fear eaters. The player operating the fear eater cannot act on this information unless they use detect fear. So it's it's not a meta thing. You can't be like, oh, they're afraid of bees. So suddenly, if you're not the one that detected that, you can throw bees at them. It's it's very in-game knowledge. Um, animal prey and fear. Basically, animals are instinct-based. Uh, they're less susceptible to fear, but you also get much less essence from animals, which makes sense. Um, basically, uh, I think at one point later, it says that, oh, no, it says it right here. Consuming essence from this prey is a desperate act. So if you get to the point where you're literally scaring squirrels, you're 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 at the edge of your <laughs> essence, really. Um, another just insanely awesome piece of art here with this creature. I think the head looks very similar to the one from the front cover, but just kind of like looming. Um, it's great. Uh, challenges. So challenges are kind of like the, the, the core mechanic because you use actions, but you do challenges. So basically, this is another time it says, and they feed on fear. Almost nothing is certain. You face plenty of obstacles. You must overcome. Um, two types of challenges. There are ones initiated by the fear eater and ones initiated by the provider. So basically, um, when the fear eater initiates a challenge, they get to choose um, what uh, what they're doing and what kind of attribute or ability that they want to use in order to do that. And the provider just assigns the target number to that. Um, but on the provider-initiated challenge, um, if a fear or course of action presents consequences that might be harmful, the provider will ask the player to face a challenge. Passing may mitigate consequences, but the provider decides which attribute and aspect the fear eater uses and the associated target number. So... Basically, whether you're initiating the challenge or the provider initiating the challenge determines who gets to um, kind of pick the specific thing that you're doing. Um, depending on an aspect, a challenge succeeds or fails. It is over. So we are 18 pages in, and this is when I was first like, okay, I understand why there's positive and negatives. Because until this point, I was like, why isn't it just plus two, plus two, plus two, plus, you know what I mean? Like pluses in all directions. And this, I would have not have minded way earlier to kind of give a breakdown of like, these are why you have pluses and minuses a little more clearly. So basically, the target number is determined by the attribute that you're using in order to um, do the challenge, right? So if you are doing the positive numbers, which are your mind and physical numbers, you want to roll over your target number, and if you're using matter and ethereal, 
you want to roll equal to or less than the target number. So it's it's a it's a mixed system of it's a roll over or roll under depending on if you're positive or negative. So having negative stats, quote unquote, into matter and ethereal isn't bad because you will be using a roll under system and the positive uses the roll under system. Yeah, that, that's it's clever. Um, so I don't clever. know if I would design it this way personally, um, just because I, I like, you know, a universal resolution system. <laughs> um, but I will admit it is, yeah, like I said, that is very clever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I the first thing I thought was pretty much the same thing where I was like, I love this intellectually, but at the table, people are going to be like, no, wait a minute. Oh, shit. Wait, is that the over one or is that the under one? Let me look at my sheet real quick. It's, yeah. There's like a, a little um, bit of fiddliness to it. It's the biggest issue I run into when I'm running Troika because it's an over and under system. Uh, not quite like this, but, you know, in similar nature where your own roles, are, I think they're roll under your stat and your versus roles are roll plus stat versus the enemy's roll plus stat. And every time uh, I love Troika, every time I run it, that's the biggest hang up is it's not a universal resolution system. Um, mm -hmm. So, again, like you said, conceptually, hell yeah. I'd have to see how it operates at the table before I could have like a final opinion on it. I think what I would do realistically is have uh, different color dice for my positive and negative stats and just remember that, that my black dice yeah. roll over and my red dice roll under. I think that's the only way that would stick in my head. But I can imagine more than once, especially early on, um, having to remember which one is up, which one's down. So mathematically speaking, my question to you is, because I didn't dig deep in my brain to figure it out, why do you think that the over has to be over the target number, but the under can be equal to or below the target number? Um, realistically, because I think you had to choose one or the other. I don't even think it's a math thing. I think it's just a, like an ease of design. Um, unless you are doing a situation where you put the crit on the target number um yeah because uh, i've seen yeah so i've seen systems do that um that would i mean if you don't do that you just got to pick one <laughs> because either way um that would make rolling the target number favorable for both and i don't know maybe i'm just thinking about this yeah but like much. it's not like it would break it like if you did equal to or over for your over scores it's Maybe not like right. going equal to or less. It's not like you're like. That's mm. that's my curiosity is why equal only on the on the on the roll under because you could do equal or over because you're rolling positive anyway. Like it's not like the negative also exists when you're rolling the negative. So I, I'm curious about. Yeah, I, I wonder huh. if there's some math in a weird way that's breaking my brain. Um, Maybe it's because the crit is the nat 12 on the. Uh... The matter ethereal has something to do with that or but it's a nat one too and mathematically since you're only rolling one die every die has the same percentage of roll so i'm curious the the this has this for yeah, example part here it says if the provider determined the fear eaters are facing a challenge with 50 50 odds using matter or ethereal it would be target number six and rolling equal to our lesson six is a success oh maybe that's why because okay. technically until six there's six numbers, and after six, there's six numbers. But until six, it includes six, and after six, it doesn't. Yeah, because there's no zero. Because there's no zero. So that must be it. Because if you have to roll under, if you roll over, 
I don't know. I feel like that's a direction, but my brain said we need to move on. But yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious. I, I do love it. I love that is a part of game design that I really love. I love being like, what is the percentage you get on 2D6 plus one? Yeah. Um, crit fails exist. Um, everything gets worse. Um, crit failure adds additional essence loss, double stress and hysteria, um, attracts protectors attention, etc. Um, and then sometimes the um, provider can issue challenges with risks. So basically they will say, hey, you can go ahead and do this thing, um, but uh, there's going to be extra stress involved. Um, and that's the thing that can happen. The cover art is the next big piece of art, and it is glorious and beautiful and fantastic. And then another just insane creature after that. So manipulations is where I got to where I was like, oh, I would not have minded a manipulations box on my character sheet. So I know how many I currently have. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, that makes sense. This is one of the things I didn't immediately understand. But um, so I read this a bunch of times for the same for, because that's the thing. I was like, well, why? This is when I got to the point where I was like another thing. Why? But how I viewed it and we'll go through it real quick and then I'll say how I viewed it. So what is a manipulation? Manipulation is when a player describes how the fear reader utilizes this environment and situational circumstances to provide a future challenge with favorable conditions. I feel like in this is kind of like a um, like a well, I don't know. what I, I hate the words that Apocalypse World uses, even though I love the game. But what is the one where you can like one forward or something like that? You know what I mean? I don't know exactly what you're talking about because uh, I was just I reading like that's, Monster of the Week. Yeah, that's what this is. And I feel like this is the kind of advantage-disadvantage system where it's not advantage or disadvantage. It's boons and banes and it's narrative. Gotcha. There's no use of essence at all in manipulations. I feel like it's just a way to encourage narrative play in order to give yourself a, a bonus, but that the provider can give you a, a bane um, if you uh, put yourself into a shitty situation. So to explain it for the, the people that haven't read it, basically exactly what that just said, utilize your environment and situational circumstance to provide a future challenge with favorable conditions, and that's called a manipulation. Um, it, uh, granted by the provider, it rewards the player with a modifier to any single die roll during the encounter where it makes narrative sense. A manipulation grants a plus one or a minus one in their fear eater's favor. Manipulations do not require essence expenditure and no actions or abilities are utilized. A player can bank any number of manipulations during an encounter, but a maximum of two can be applied to a single challenge. Please apply or players apply manipulation modifiers before rolling. Unused manipulations are removed at the end of the encounter. That's it. So um, I'm going to finish this and then I'll go back to the example because that really helped me. Manipulations hindering fear eaters also exist. If the situation disfavors a fear eater, basically same thing. You can get a plus or minus, but in the bad way. And providers can use up to three against you or in the prayer's uh praise favor so for example a fear eaters outside of praise window inside to increase a creepy fact no this isn't the one i liked this is the one i liked in a different encounter the fear eater knows that the prey fears snakes no this isn't the one i liked either there's there's an example to play later where basically it says um I'll just read this one and go to it. So outside of praise window um, and decides to increase a creepy factor by forming a claw with a gnarled tree branch and slowly scraping the glass. This activity costs no essence. Provider rewards a figure just play with the manipulation for creating a spooky atmosphere. And later the player um, applies in manipulations to a drain essence role requiring a suitable narrative. So basically you can adjust your environment a little bit to put yourself into, into shitty situations. Again, I go to Monsters, Inc., 
where they like scrape something across the ground where they like start to build the 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 kids fears before they actually jump out and puts him into spooky creepy situations where there, there, there's one later where like tendrils like go under the water unnoticed and it's like oh sure yeah that'll help you later on because you have these tendrils under the water or whatever so uh, basically you can give yourself a plus one if you narratively make things better for you in the situation before you start to create your action and i i once once i f i feel like that what it's supposed to be once i got that i was like oh that makes sense because for the same reason i said earlier i feel like a lot of this feels like third person play this to me feels like a really nice narrative mechanic that's not like a, a dice mechanic that will be like, oh, okay, like engage with the environment and put yourself in a good situation so that you can be a little bit more in the situation. Yeah, it's sort of um, mechanical incentive for narrative use of the fear that you have already sort of detected, I believe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um. And I, I dig it and you can do it a bunch. So basically, like, I, I also imagine like it says you can have as many manipulations as you want. So you could find your prey and just just do a bunch of spooky stuff all around. Really fuck with them, like, you know, chase them out of their room, get them to the to the dining room, do all sorts of stuff, build up a bunch of manipulations and then just get bonuses to all your roles because you made them so freaked out. I, I really like that. Um, next, distress and hysteria. So basically, these are things that exist in the world. Um, th this is one of the ones that I actually was a little bit more kind of foggy on. So um, stress tracks praise awareness of supernatural events in the community, representing the theater's impact without role playing every detail. So basically, what it comes down to is every time the fear eater does something, it's going to cause stress. And the more stressed, um, the more stress that you have, the worse things get for you, for the fear eater, actually, as opposed to the prey, because you are putting the prey in the community on alert is what it feels like to me, where yeah, they're, they're sort more, of, uh, they're becoming aware of your existence. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like they're, they're, even though they're scared, like that's the thing is like if you're if you're just in your room like chilling you're not going to notice like the shadow in the corner but as soon as the shadow looks like it's moving you're going to be peeking at that corner all the time being like is that where my paralysis demon is um so it's actually stressing the prey out but it's making them more aware of what is stressing them out so it's it's an interesting mechanic because a lot of times stress is bad for the thing being hunted is where my my mind would go, but it's actually it's bad for them, but worse for you because they make them aware of you. So right. um, during a counter, each participating fear eater had this own stress total, et cetera, et cetera. So fear eaters, actions and abilities have stress values. So you actually get to when you are determining which ability you're going to use, you have to look at the amount of stress you're going to cause um, and then prey have stress ranges as well. Um, and providers may also increase stress um, if the um, ability is warranted. So if you put yourself in a super shitty situation, you could shoot the stress through the roof. Um, and then in order to decrease stress, um, uh, when any participating fear eater performs an action or ability that states it removes stress. So that's a very mechanical, like, take an ability at some point that you can potentially use to reduce stress. You know, have a little stuffed animal pop out or something, you know, do what you got to do to kind of like calm people down. Um, yeah. 
And then there is hysteria. So hysteria is more of a community-based thing than the individual prey-based thing. At the end of every encounter, the provider makes a hysteria check, obviously a D12, um, and it's based on the total stress that you generated across the encounter. So hysteria conversion table has stress, hysteria check, and how much you increase hysteria by, obviously, um, it goes 1 to 5, 6 to 10, 11 to 15, 16 to 20, 21 to 25, and 26 plus. Um, and it's a D12 roll. It's 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Um, and then hysteria increases by 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, or 30. Um, and then you'll have a community response table based on the hysteria amount. So you build stress to do a stress check to increase hysteria, then use a hysteria amount to see what level you are on the community response. Um, level one, you're just alerting neighborhood kids and stuff. Basically, you can alert different levels of protectors against you, all the way down to mass hysteria, where the entire community becomes a threat, and you basically need to... Um, you're, I don't even know what you would do at that point. Like, all prey are considered threats. You have, like, they're evacuating the community. Basically, if you get to mass hysteria, I feel like that's like a, well, that sucks for you, like, point. You lose, basically. Yeah. There's nothing you can really do at that point. Um, yeah, community response to that. We don't need to dig through that too deeply. Um, daytime hysteria. Basically, during the sunlight hours, you double the hysteria added to a hysteria check because you're more visible, basically, is what it comes down to. Um, and you can adjust it based on population and 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 things like that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, love, love these two pieces of art here. They are yeah, absolutely, is, uh, uh, absolutely Daniel Vega that made these. Yeah, he, the comic that he writes, like I, uh, just everything that this person does is insane. This would be like a dream, like artist for like a. a in my opinion, for like a like a dark fantasy, really fucked up horror world. They're just so insanely i don't know i don't know what it is it strikes me in a way that i want to be struck um prey types of prey so this is another thing where like i don't know we've, we've discussed this a little bit and this comes out a little bit more so basically we've already talked about animals civilians protectors and chosen not needed to dig too deep into those animals exist civilians are your basic kind of go-to targets um over the course of a session they could become a threat um, protectors are um, always considered a threat. Threat is capital and bolded. Um, they believe in supernatural. They're ready to fight you. Um, uh, protectors conviction is both a boon and a bane to you. Um, and the core of a protector's ability to harm and resist a fear eater is belief, which is also central to essence. Thus, overcoming a protect protector often results in more essence. Um, and then there are chosen, which are rare humans, often children that are just jam-packed full of essence. They're just real juicy ones that you really want to get that essence from. Um, and then you have uh, your prey totals. Um, essence total for animals is four, civilians is six, protectors is eight, chosen is 12. Um, when you're, uh, there are eight characteristics of prey. It is their name, their type. We've already talked about those four. Their essence total, which I just stated. They're a resilience which is um, how many times a fear eater can drain its prey essence before they perish. Ranges from one to three. So basically, if they have two, you can drain them twice, and on the second, they die. Um, the prey has target numbers for each of the different abilities, um, the amount of stress that they have. So once you uh, have drained uh, that prey, how much stress is added to your track for hysteria. Um, and then they have the fears listed for each one and special traits. 
Um, things like fearful, outspoken, relentless, watchful. Uh, for example, watchful says the praise matter challenges always have one manipulation in their favor. So um, basically, uh, the special traits give a little bit of mechanical benefit um, against you for the prey that you're going up to. There's a whole page here of prey profiles, which I think are fantastic. And the book specifically says, just use these. There's a section later for like how to write them. That's cool, but just use these. Just change the name or something in the beginning. These are great numbers and, and just go with that. Love that, Agent Molder. Yeah, a lot of them. Duffy the Slayer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's there's they're they're great. Um, Rover the Loyal Dog. Yeah, these these are fantastic. Um, more great art and then threats. Um, so as I said, there's a lot to this game. I feel like I feel like I'm like oh I must almost be done and then I realize we're not even like halfway through the book and it's like okay now manipulations now this now that now that and none of them are difficult but I feel like and I don't think there's too many but there's just there's a lot. Am I wrong? Did you feel that as you went through there? You're just like, oh no, another thing. This is kind of what I meant earlier is that it's very much a game designed for longer term play. There's all these elements that you have to be considering and bringing in. And again, while the mechanics piece of cake, once you get them down, it's, you know, getting that procedure of play that I think is going to be the trickiest part of this system here, especially because mm -hmm. it's, uh, it feels like this is a game that wants heavy narrative contribution from the players but then kind of i'm not gonna say dump because that seems pejorative but it puts a lot of this additional elements on the gm to track like all of these things mm -hmm. yeah well even because even the reference sheet here it's it's all the tables that you need but at no point is there really like i mean you can read through the examples of play and that's great i love going through the examples of play and then it'll give like the math after, which is also great. But I would not mind just a list where it goes, you do X, you do Y, you do Z, like, and it goes through and it says, you know, you do this, but they are a threat. So that means this. So they do this. So that means this. So this is the message you get. So that means this, like just a walk through of like, chart. yeah, just a flow chart would be fantastic. I love flow charts. I want more flow charts and books. So uh threats what are they they are threats uh, it's it's i mean the word is great so most common threats are um humans uh, oftentimes they are protectors which are always a threat but there can be additional threat sources um and providers choose those aspects and then using threats against the players there's direct intervention if a players give away their location or follow a predictable pattern especially of an action a threat may respond specifically so for example um if a fear eater stalks members of the same family nightly they might hire a monster hunter to track and kill you. That's a direct intervention by the provider to stop something that you do. And then there's the indirect intervention, um, which basically is indirect. So the example is Jake, an urban explorer, endlessly aid of a friend to watch their back overnight. The provider can modify the target number for the fear eaters actions because they are now two people instead of one. So as opposed to another thing coming after you, it just modifies the situations in their favor as an indirect intervention. And that's kind of the difference between the two. There's a whole list here of the different types of protectors from um, kids on bikes. The first time I read that, I saw it capitalized earlier and I was like, is that a cheeky reference to the game? Um, but then I was like, no, it's, it's, a, it's capital because it's a, it's a, it's an important actual thing in the game. 
But um, there's kids on bikes, concerned citizens, investigators, mystics, organized religions, armed forces, and secret societies from bottom to the top. So as you um, increase hysteria and increase stress and all those other things, these are the various different things you could go against. And that also might be like rounded up to get you. So they might hire an investigator and that's bad for you based on that. And then all the way down on page 32, we get to actions, which is really interesting to me. It is, again, challenges and actions, in my opinion, should be like if if character creation is going to be first, the next two things should be actions and challenges, because those are like, in my opinion, like the most core mechanisms like to the game and the actual gameplay loop. And then everything else kind of comes from those. Yeah, in general, I think I said it at this near the start that I like how the book is laid out mostly in terms of like the sections. This is one that needs to get up in front or at least closer. No, um, because until this point, like a lot of this stuff, I mean, I know it says use detect thing action, but like outside of like detect fear, very little things are talked about like what you can actually do. And I know how to do them, but I don't know what I'm doing a lot of the time, you know, um performing actions you perform them I, I i that's we've talked about a lot of how it works so basically there's an example here you can perform the siphon action using the ethereal aspect you send tendrils of phantasmal energy i would not have minded and maybe i'm missing it literally like a one two three four like choose your action choose your attribute roll this do that like i'm dumb give me give me numbered lists of exactly the way i want to run it out um, I love how much they say, for example, I think the examples are fantastic all the way through this, but numbered list and flow charts are super helpful for a game that uses a unique system that people aren't going to be very familiar with. Um, yeah, we, we've talked about how this all works and it's great, you know, uh, but again, having it earlier and having it all in one place would be nice. Um, characteristics, each action details the following characteristics. It has a name and attribute aspects, essence, course, stress, and description. Um, so we'll get to that in a little bit. Actions targeting prey. When a fear eater targets an individual prey performing an action, the prey's target number are used during challenges unless otherwise noted. So for example, if you perform a physical drain essence and the provider uses the prey's physical target number, that's what you have to roll against. Actions without targets is, is a thing. There's other actions that you can do. So um, there is a whole action list, very important piece of information, 36 pages in, 34 pages in, all the different things you can do and how it works. Exit, lair, return, fend off, commune, roam, stalk, abduction, and then other actions are just varies. And it gives the attribute that you use, the essence cost that it takes, the stress that you can accrue from it, and exactly what the description is of how you do it. Love this. This is great. I think all of them are really, really good. Um, if you're going to have specific actions that you can do, this is a great list for all the things that you could do. I feel like, you know, something like Apocalypse World, or at least the variations that I've played with, having like six, like you can do anything you want, but like here are these. I think this is a much bigger, better list. And then, you know, there's other things you can do that just varies. Um, but I think this should be in page like 10, not page 34. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, yeah it, it does feel, even in the way that the book flows, just a little out of place here. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I just want, I want the key mechanics of exactly how to do stuff much earlier. And if it's, like I said, if it's not before character creation, I want the most important bits right after. Um, and I feel like we hit a bunch of stuff that, like, knowing the prey types and stuff like that is great, but knowing 
like how to do the things that I'm going to want to do to those prototypes before even digging into like, like how to do indirect action, like indirect, you know, prey stuff. Like I feel like it's just more important. Um, abilities. Abilities are fear eaters, are actions fear eaters learn and develop as they go. Um, sometimes they have an attribute prerequisite um, and you can basically buy them as you increase your doom clock, which we've already discussed. So um, they have a name, a prereq, an essence cost, stress, and a description, and a great piece of art and more art. I mean, there's never, there's, I've never said the book has too much art and I'm not saying about this one, but if I was ever going to, this one's close. Um, <laughs> but there is an entire page ability list here and they're all fantastic. Total Absorption, Change of Fate, Aura of Amnesia, Cull Hysteria, Vicarious Grip, or Grasp. I love these. Some of them have this prereq, right? So like Frenzy, for example, you have to have a plus two in your PVE, your, your physical versus um, ethereal. It costs two essence. It creates three stress. And then the description is the free reader lets loose an orgy of destruction, destroying a physical object, location, or prey. No essence is earned from prey. So... That's one of the ones that requires a prerequisite, but again, every other essence you or or tick on the doom clock. Um, okay, um, we have to um, do that. So uh, campaigns. We've talked about this before. I don't know why this section is called campaigns because it literally is just like encounter stuff. Like I know this has sessions encounters, and there's a whole tag on campaigns here, but it talks about rolling for initiative. Um, how to reward your players, which is just manipulation and bonuses and things. Um, if you're going to use time units, what they are. Um, and then there's mid-level fear eaters. Basically, the provider and the player may want to run a campaign with fear eaters with more experience. So basically, this talks about how to not start at zero, like how to start at like mid-level, so which I think would shorten a campaign. I'm not going to dig too deep into this, but it basically changes um how you start the game with various options and the attribute values that you could start with based on which one you want to go with so instead of trying to get to bestial you're going to start at bestial um da, 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 da. there's a whole section here on community and this is really about detailing how to build it and how to introduce locations because since there isn't an adventure um things are introduced as you go either provider or the fear eater can to be like okay well um i want to say there's a school and you're like cool okay now there's a school now it exists let's slap it on a map and go um, yeah this, and this feels like uh something that could have just been wrapped under campaign as opposed to giving its own header but you know mild yeah. critique but that's the thing like if that's what i'm saying is if this whole thing is gonna be a campaign section then break the book into like Characterization rules campaign. You know what I mean? I don't know why yeah. it's it's a little different. So that's how you introduce locations. That's basically how you create the quote unquote adventure is you build this map out by either provider um, introducing a location or the fear eaters introducing a location. Here is an example map. I think it's great graphically, but it, in no way, shape or form is this useful as a map. There's fear eaters all over the place. <laughs> Are you playing with 30 people? You know, this is your mass hysteria moment. Uh, the end of the campaign. This is the end of the fucking world. There's literally like 50 fucking uh, yeah. fear eaters on this. Um, 
we're kind of cruising the end. We're going to get to the appendices in just a minute. There's a one shot session here. Um, don't really need to go through this, but basically there is a way to play one shot sessions. And what it comes down to is uh, some variations in the way that the encounters work. Um, not really using the doom clock at all because you're never going to get to the creature's end goal. Um, and um, creating a winning condition. Since there is no end goal in a one shot, you strive to create a winning condition similar to an end goal, but it's kind of more single session focused as opposed to like your final end goal as your entire existence as, as a being. There's a section here on prey creation, which again, there's eight characteristics of prey. So, you know, just use the ones that are in the book. Um, prey selection. Again, more campaign stuff. And then there's a million examples of play. I love them. I love that there's so many. I think there's fantastic. I think there's what, like five or six different examples of play. Yeah. And even the like, not just these explicit examples, the little call out boxes throughout the uh, the book are honestly probably some of the best examples of play I think I've ever read in an RPG book. <laughs> they, are, they are very well written. Well, the thing too about the examples of play is after the examples of play, there is this calculations breakdown of the entire encounter and like all the actions that happen so you can understand how the math worked all the way through. I think that's freaking genius. Um, if you're going to put this much effort in, again, I wouldn't have minded a thing that just gives me a if A, then B, then C, then C, you know what I mean? Like a flow chart. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty, I feel like, okay, so Appendix A is random tables. And they are just all the various things throughout the book that said, if you want to go to this table, like here's a list of end goals. Here's a list of essence types. Here's a list of physical appearances. Really fantastic tables. Highly recommend reading them. Um, it's one of those like make your own, but it, here's some super flavorful ones if you don't want to make your own. Um, and then appendix. I mean, that just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. And then appendix B is solo rules. Um, so you can play on your own. Some slight tweaks because a lot of this it can just roll details for things, but it's really, really neat and interesting. Um, you add an antagonist in, um, or you can, uh, into the solo play, into the solo challenges, which is an interesting kind of twist. Um, and uh, I enjoy it. I think it's great. The solo rules go for a decent amount of time. We're not going to dig too deep into the solo rules, but it would be really interesting to sit down and actually play this solo. Yeah, I'm not much of a solo player personally, and that's generally just because I don't have time for it. But they look robust and, you know, well done as opposed to like an afterthought. No. Um, one of the things I love, too, is the character sheets. We've seen this a couple times in books recently, and I don't know why. Instead of being in the middle of the book, they are right at the back where they should be. Um, so you can chop out the very last page of the book if you want to make photocopies. But there's also a filled out example of a character sheet on here, which I love. Yeah, it's a good call for a game like this where um, mm. you might be staring at that character sheet even after playing the game and wondering what the hell you're supposed to do. <laughs> so. Right. Um, and then that is They Feed on Fear. So we are going to hop over to our scores real quick and kind of cruise through these. Um, and uh, obviously it's a book. So uh, for those that are unaware or uh, we give a we give scores for various things. We have five metrics. There's art and layout, which is the quality, quantity um, of art in the book. Not only that, but also how well it's used throughout. And then the layout visually, not whether you can read it or not, but if it looks cool. Um, usability is um, hyperlinks. It's maps that actually work. It's how usable the entire book is and the different parts of it. The rule set, if it's adapted rule set, how well is adapted if it's new? 
Do we like it? Is it good? Does it work? Originality is exactly what it sounds like, but it can be a mix of all of the things above it. Is it new and unique art, unique layout, new and unique rules, lore, etc.? Value is really bang for your buck. Um, if you, not just how much it costs, but what you get with it. And then uh, each one goes to 10 for a total of a possible 50. And uh, five on this is considered bang average. Nothing good, nothing bad. It's fine. It exists. So average is 25. Um, and that's it. So uh, hidden art and layout. What are your uh, initial impressions of art and layout? I think we, we touched on a lot of this. Um, actually, a lot of these elements during the actual discussion here. Um, this book might have some of the best horror art ever produced for a tabletop RPG. Yeah. And that carries like my entire opinion on the matter. Um, the layout itself is good. You know, it's got that standard two column format, uh, the call up boxes. Um, I talked about my minor gripe about how the text is a little cramped and <laughs> that would, you know, if we're talking score, that would, you know, bump it up if that was a little bit better or a little bit easier to read. Um, but yeah. God damn, that art is good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I would put some of the RPG rules. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and not in not in the way that like Warpland or like Morkborg is. It's not like you know every page is a thing. It's just the amount of just full page art without words or anything on it is great. Um, I think I would like. I think we try to put things like the small text and stuff more into the usability aspect of it um visually like yeah i like the layout it's great i think two columns i don't there's it, it it works it's great it looks good and as you said the art's great um i think um what what number are you feeling for for art and layout here um, i was gonna say eight you know the art art is definitely like a 10 out of 10 and visually if the layout was just a little bit better i think it would have given it probably higher but i think i think a solid eight on my end yeah, I, I, I agree with the same. I agree. I think the I don't know how else you would put this much information in besides the two columns and, and whatnot like that. Um, there's very little they could have done differently as far as yeah. the layout is concerned to, to uh, really increase it. But the art itself is so good. Yeah, just on like a final note on that. Um, again, I don't know how I would do the layout differently if I was the layout artist. But the one thing I kind of look for for my 10 out of 10 is like, can I do that? And if the answer is no, that impresses me. <laughs> and two, it's like, do I want to imitate that? Um, yeah. And this is, you know, they feed on fear. Um, I feel confident that I could recreate that layout, which is good. You know, I like that it's solid, um, but it's not like blowing my mind with how good the layout is, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's it, the, the specific layout is extremely functional and, and that's great. The, like you said, the art really carries us up from like a, a seven to an eight easily, if not from a six to an eight. Yeah. Um, usability. So, um, again, in 2023, this got hyperlinks, it's got bookmarks, it's got all the digital tools you could possibly want to navigate the PDF easier, inline hyperlinks, everything to look for. Great. Love that. I love that um, physically it does come with character sheets. Um, it does come with the provider screen. But but here's where a lot of the butts come from. I it's just a piece of art on an interesting color. This does not provide me any additional usability for a GM screen. <laughs> I roll one dice. It's a D12. I don't need to hide it behind a screen. I would have loved references on here. This is where I would like a flowchart of actions. This is where I would like how threat works. This is where I would like types of prey and and stuff like that. This would have increased usability for me a lot. Um, the map 
isn't really a usable thing. It's, it was an example anyway, which I think is just more use for art. Um, I think as we were going through, it really felt like some of the sections could have been rearranged a little bit more. Um, and I think layout wise in the sense of like readability, which falls under usability for me, like you said, it's a little bit cramped. It's a little bit dense. Um, the, the gray boxes specifically are very small text. So um, I think, I think it's fine. I think overall it's okay. Um, I love that it has all the digital tools added, but I would have liked, I mean, the reference sheet is great, but it's really just a list of tables. It doesn't really tell me any of the mechanics I need as a, as a GM um, or to remember. So it's, it's, it's okay. What are your thoughts? I'm kind of right there with you. Uh, table contents, hyperlinks, great. You know, obviously those weren't there at the launch and were added later. Um, the, Bookmarks never showed up on my end. I don't know if there's a problem with Adobe because um, I know depending on how you export it, sometimes there's weird stuff that doesn't show up right. Um, oh, yeah. No, they pop that, up great for me. Yeah, that that seems like it's an issue on my end because they're supposed to be there. So I can't, you know, ding it for that. Um, I think the book has a decent flow to it. You know, there are two or three things that um, could be rearranged, should have been rearranged. Let me be clear. Um, that that's what kind of dings it down a little bit, but I think it's good. It's functional. You can flip through it and it's not the hardest book to reference. Um, but the problem is you're going to have to be referencing those pages because there isn't that, that the reference sheets in the book. And so like, I would have been, you know, a couple of points higher just if there had been those reference sheets alone. Um, but other than that, it seems functional. I, I don't, I don't have much of an issue with the usability here. It's pretty, pretty, um, standard to slightly above the board in my opinion yeah yeah i mean so again five means nothing good nothing bad i mean i think we do have some good things to say we do have some bad things to say in my opinion for me this is sitting just just above average for me this feels like around a six-ish for me because of like even just having the provider seats in the book or any information on the on the gm screen would have bumped it up to a little bit higher than that for me but what are your thoughts yeah. Um, I was initially thinking seven, but uh, I think, you know, having discussed the six makes a, you know, I'm perfectly okay with that. Um, again, it's it's good. It's functional. It's just uh, a couple of small tweaks and it'd be, you know, considerably better. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. Um, rule set. So um, what are your, what are your, what's your take on rules? All right. So the rules, they're clever. They're unique. I like them. I don't know if I understand them. <laughs> Uh, so I've only read this book once. I haven't brought it to the table and that's, you know, a vast amount of the experience comes from, you know, running and learning the system. Uh, so part of my, my kind of final thoughts here is, is shaped by that. And it's only on a read. And some of this is how the rules are described. I don't know if that means a different editing hand or whatever, you know, if you guys is a really good editor. So I, I don't know if it's that more specifically of how, sort of abstract some of these concepts are you know the uh the two attributes but have two elements as part of those attributes is a little bit confusing and probably could have been explained a little bit better even though i do like the end result and um in terms of the rules i think this is something we a little <laughs> disagree on but uh, the system really wants you to push this game into full campaign play. I just don't think the majority of groups are going to be using the procedure to generate the campaigns in the way that uh, the rule set would like you to do. 
And I don't know if that's a failing on the rules part or more of just like my sort of jaded take on it. Um, but for me, this would have sung a lot better if it was tweaked just a little bit to gear it more towards shorter arcs and then had like the here's how you blow this into an extended campaign. And that's primarily because I only play short arcs um, so I can play a lot. But uh, I think if you had made some of those tweaks, a bit of our confusion would probably have been a little less so because it would have been a little more straightforward, a little less complex of a procedure. And then it kind of lets you focus on the core experience rather than this whole, you know, extended thing. If right. that makes sense. It does. I think, I think one of the problems, first of all, I love the rule set. I think it's clean as fuck. I love yeah. the plus minus. I love how all the math works out as far as, I mean, except for the minus over because I, I still don't get that. But, um, I like the, the the roll over under situation. Uh, what I I think what the same thing you're saying, I think I'm kind of saying the same thing or a very similar thing is that it's not that I there are rules that I have issues with. It's the way that they're laid out and the way that they're explained a little bit. It could be explained a little bit better. And I think, as I said, a flow chart or something, because here's the thing. One of the core components of the entire game, we skim through at the end because it's basically it's an appendix. And that is how the fuck do you even play the game there is no map you have to put out like you have to introduce locations and stuff that is like 40 something pages into the book that is a that is literally one of the core parts of the entire game experience is challenges attributes and stuff but how do you even get to the prey to hunt it you have to you have to um uh introduce uh, part of the community that you're going to go to. So I feel like if there was near the very beginning, not necessarily an example of play, but really a breakdown of the play loop or even a separate reference sheet that literally had a breakdown of like, what do you do? Okay. You introduce a location. So you leave your layer, like breakdown of everything. I think that would decrease so much confusion and increase so much that does fall a little Agreed. bit into usability for me but overall in the rule set i i really like it i think it's really clever i think it's really smart i think it's got a lot of interesting fun things that i really want to play with um for me um if it had that little bit more so there's a little bit more um kind of understanding in that initial loop this would probably be around an eight for me but i really i really like i i think it fits around a seven for me because of how fun and interesting the mechanics are this is one of those ones that like once i get it to the table it could easily become a six or it could easily become an eight so sure. for me i feel like it's right around a seven what are your thoughts yeah i think i kind of agree with that my initial number was a, a six because um, i was kind of sitting with this last night thinking of how i overall thought of it but you know having this conversation and getting to have you know you kind of help me with some of the details here i think it kind of ups my uh take on it so i'm, I'm good with a seven too yeah like I said, this is one I would love to give an eight to. I really love the system. Even if you take out all the horror stuff, just the math of like the plus plus and minus roll over, roll under, I really enjoy it. It's yeah. just, like I said, it, a little bit better explanation on the loop. Okay, so originality. Um, I mean, you play monsters sucking energy. You're evil monsters, Inc., and I love it. It's fantastic. I think it's got some interesting mechanics in the rules. I think it's got a lot going for it. it it's 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 got a lot. What are your thoughts on originality? So um, I think you'll agree with me on this, but my 10 for originality is Necronautilus. 
uh, which is the perfect example of how originality is taken in concept and execution in terms of mechanics, where uh, you know, you're playing noxious, vaguely humanoid shapes, uh, clouds of gas that serve as the agents of death in their galaxy-like domain. Um, and the mechanic is built around the subjectivity of language and how that changes based on how you break apart, you know, words and spelling. And it's like, all right, that's like fucking 10 out of 10. Let me get to this. And it's not to disparage this because this is you're playing horrors that suck out human souls. Like it's hard to find any more originality than that. Like the the only thing that I've come across, you know, there's probably more than this. You know, there's, there's the world of darkness stuff where you're evil villains, but um recently there was the whole breach book uh, for mothership that has um a section in there that's called uh, manhunt and that's just you get to play the horrors and go kill a bunch of humans and i think that that's a much more straightforward version of this this type of concept but here you're like <laughs> you this you don't even have a form you can change elder you know this eldritch being that can change how they look and how they act in service to some other eldritch being <laughs> and then you suck out human souls i was like all right that's pretty good um yeah. i do wish the mechanics were a little more original and that's not to say that they aren't you know this isn't a hack this is a, a as far as i can tell a bespoke system that isn't based on anything um I don't know how I would design this, but in the way that Necronautilus is a 10 because its core concepts are enforced by its mechanics, I wish there was something just a little bit more to the system. I don't know what that something is, but... Yeah, I, I agree. And now I understand the note that you made about Necronalus. And yes, I'm pretty sure Necronalus is the only game we've ever given a 10 to in originality. I'm pretty... <laughs> uh, we might have given one other, but now I see what you mean. And yes, that is exactly it. And... It's because the concepts and the rules and everything, there's so many things where you're just like, fuck, whoa, like, you know, and like you said, with the rules on this, like, I like them, they're clever, they're clean, but as far as originality goes, you're rolling a d12, you have pluses and minuses, things like that, you're not literally creating powers from words and shit, you know what I mean? Like, so I agree with you there. Um, a lot of fun, interesting, original concepts. I mean, it, I, I do enjoy it. What are your, what are your thoughts on, on a score for this? Um, I was my initially I was thinking a nine, but as I kind of thought about it and how it compared to Necronautilus in my head, I dropped that down a little bit to an eight. But it's honestly, yeah. you ask me any given day and it could be anywhere from eight to nine. So, yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I think I think eight works really well. Again, we've only ever given one ten. So tens are pretty much out of reach. So we go to a scale of nine a lot of the times, at least in my brain. And this to me feels like maybe like just one or two interesting little tweaks that could that would go to a nine. So eight feels good for me. Yeah. And then value, I think you wrote down, uh, at some point, you wrote down costs and everything like that. Yeah, um, so I can uh, break this down real quick, my thoughts. Yeah. Um, on itch.io, uh, itch the PDF is $12. Uh, if you buy through physical on the Store Envy shop, which I think is run directly by uh, Alexi, uh, it's $24 and includes the rule book. It's 100 pages. The GM screen that apparently isn't much of a GM screen. You get a sticker, you get a collectible card, and then you get that double-sided character sheet map. Um, inside the book, it's set up for primarily for campaigns. So you can get extended play out of it, but it also has that little section on running one-shots, which is great. I love that. And it has solo rules, which I get. Fuck yeah. Um, and it's robust solo rules. It's not just like a one-page thing. Um, another cool thing we didn't talk about, there's a third party creator, um, 
like license right in the back of the book. So if you mm-hmm. want to make something for this, there you go. There's your your you know permission to do so. Um, so in terms of value, it's like fuck, great. You know, you're this should be forty dollars. You know, if you're buying the physical version, uh, yeah, especially you know, with all that art in it. Yeah, I mean, if this is hardback, I would say forty dollars for sure. I think twenty four for for all the stuff that you get with it is a fucking steal. It really, really is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And you hit on a lot of things that we we talk about when we when we go over this. That third party license is one of the most important things. Like I don't understand why anyone in twenty three doesn't want more people to make their shit, um, yeah. make stuff with their games. Um, but yeah, I, there's there's the only thing that would add more to this is something that doesn't apply to this game. So we talk about like online generators or adventures and stuff. You don't need online generators for this because you literally develop the lore as you play and stuff. And you don't need adventure for this because you don't make adventures. There are the tables to begin your community and that's it. So anything that would add more to this, like isn't necessary for this game. So yeah, what what, what are your thoughts on a number there? So um, this would be a 10 for me, if not for one thing. Mm-hmm. And it, the problem is, is my gripe here is really difficult to solve with this system specifically. And it's that I want an included adventure, but this game doesn't work on the traditional adventure setup. So I don't know what form that would take. Um, maybe like a community that's ready to go, something you could pick up and run to immediately and set it up so that it is ready to add those additional elements that you build during play. Um Again, this is my problem with this grape here is I don't know how to uh, make it work, but I'm not the author of the system. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I, th- I think it's a solid nine for value for me. Yeah. So the only games that have gotten 10s for us are games that are literally free. Like, like you can literally go to mousereader.com, play Mousereader, like download every resource you could possibly want. Like there's like generators out the ass, that's 10s and everything like that. Um, like you said, starting adventure, it wouldn't be a bad idea to maybe have just like the bones of a community so that yeah. you can be like, oh, here's a school. Here's this. Here's that for for maybe like not even like a starting adventure, but like this is a kickstart point for your first first session just to so you're not starting yeah. from scratch and you understand. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm between an eight and a nine on value for this because I don't I just don't know what else you could possibly add for it. And for yeah. the cost, twenty four dollars is crazy. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I'm good with a nine for this for value. This is about as high a score as you can get without it being fucking free. Um, so that's that's it. So this is this is a high scoring game. And I think it should be. I think, again, almost all of our gripes and this is how this works all the time on the show um, are are like nitpicky, pedantic bullshit. Um, but that's kind of the point of the show is that if like, if everyone's just like, oh, this is great, but no one goes, "Mm, but if you tweak this tiny bit and you tweak that a tiny bit, um, you know, that's how you can get stuff from, from really good to great, in my opinion. And, uh, this gets a 38. So the only thing that really dropped it a lot is the usability. Um, and that's just a little bit of cleanup in like some of the way that the layout is and some of the some of the sections would really bump that up you know to a, a little bit more um and then just a um a better explanation of the core loops and things would bump the rule set up and this could easily be um uh up in the 40s which is you know kind of top tier games you only have like you know five or six games that are in the 40 plus so 38 for they feed our fear i think is fantastic score um i really enjoy this game i would love to bring it to the table we've already played limerol from alexi um 
uh, on the show over on the TAA side. So I think an actual play of this at some point would be fantastic as well. Um, and that is uh, the end of our They Feed on Fear month of horror adventure. Um, Josh, thank you so much for being here. Sure. Um, really appreciate it. Um, any any quick promo you want to throw out where people can find your stuff or what's coming up with uh, Lemon of Horror at all? Um, I got to skedaddle, so I won't be too long with this, but uh, you can find me on social media at uh, Unenthuser. That's my little tag there. It's Unenthusiastic User smashed into one. Um, but the big thing, uh, go look at Space Penguin Inc. So you can pick up the bloom in print. Uh, if you're catching this, yeah, there you go. <laughs> if you're catching this uh, live, there should still be the 13% off for Friday the 13th promo. But if you catch it during the week, you missed out. Uh, but go get that. And we also got like new merch and stuff for Limited Horror. But uh, keep an eye on Space Penguin. That's where the most of my physical stuff is going to be for the foreseeable future. Fantastic. Love Space Penguin. Can't wait to see what Monday do more. You know where all our stuff is. Linktree for the Weekly Scroll. Again, Josh, thank you so much for coming on. You will see more of Josh on the show. And